This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Drive to deep center field, going back Hernandez at the track, right to the wall, gone! Elvis Andrews! And 29 other MLB clubs. High drive, deep left field, Guerrero lifts one to left field and gone. Oh, Tani, that was a moonshot out there in the right center. Alonzo defends his title, the 2021 Derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe from OPS Plus to juiced balls to game-changing moments. We have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. Oh, we are so close to getting down to spring training. Cannot wait. It's going to be a lot of fun as we'll be there tonight. We'll be there Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Uh, as we're doing a big test right now inside our new studio, the new A studio. As we've got cameras on us. Are you going to be a little camera shy, Cody, now that people soon are going to be able to see you while we do the show a little bit I, I don't look like i used to hair's longer i have just a mustache you're gonna have to drop some lbs uh, my weight's the same every year it doesn't change just saying uh so I'm married now i don't have to worry about it a lot of fun that's going to be happening in the next couple days and curious to kind of just get down there and see what the vibe is you know the, the we've gotten used to so many years now with spring training where it's been about winning and winning the division and going to the playoffs and how is this A's team going to be and what are they going to add? What do they need to add? What do they have that's going to help them add? And obviously, we're going to pivot. We have to. That's just how it works in this sport. And we will pivot and go in a direction of, okay, it's about building for the future, but yet we still have to talk about winning now. We have to be fair to you guys. You know, that's kind of been one of the things lately. You know, we've been talking a lot about Major League Baseball and what's going on. I mean, I think great news came out today. Sweeney Murdy, our friend from uh, the New York Yankees, put out there on Twitter that finally baseball is getting their head out of the sand and they're making these rules and changes that are absolutely fantastic for the game. And one of the major changes, and to me this is major because we've gotten so used to it in another sport that we look at what the A's, uh, what the baseball's been doing and what you see at A's games and just saying this is ridiculous is when a manager challenges, and what I love about us being a – potentially on video now is where I can do the let's go to the headset and people can watch and see what what I'm doing as I do the show you know as Bob Melvin would always you know he would put a, a, an imaginary headset on the umpire knew to go check well we're now going to know they're going to have microphones they're going to say hey Oakland is challenging the call at second base then the umpires are going to go over they're going to be with New York they're going to dress okay safer out and then they're going to come back and they're going to supposedly, I guess, kind of wink, wink, I'll believe it when I see it. But they're supposedly going to say, runner is out at second, guy didn't make the tag or whatever the call is going to be. But they're actually going to tell us now in the stadium, which then will come over on television, on radio, and let us know what's going on instead of 
umpires huddling. We have no idea. Time goes by. Time goes by. Time goes by. Then all of a sudden, it's a safer out call, whatever it is, and nothing. That's all you get. Well, now they're going to talk to us, which is a great idea. And so that's been one of the cool things that's happened in the last couple of years, especially with this new CBA, is they're going to be able to make changes. And they're going to be able to make changes on the fly. And on the fly for you and me means something absolutely different than with baseball. They still got, what, the 45-day rule, and they got a, you know, the players union, whatever. But at least we're getting modern-day changes to the game, which is nice. But going back to the A's, you know, it's like you got to realize you've had a lot of success. And I know this is something that always is kind of murky because of the situation of the organization where there's always the talk about the ballpark, there's always the talk about finances, there's always the talk about attendance. And, like, even when you have it going real good, there's still negativity around it. It's like you never get to fully enjoy it. And you might say, Townie, what are you talking about? Well, let's look at this number. Since 2000, like you think about what were you doing in 2000? In 2000, I was not married yet. I was working at KMBR. I was doing the morning show. I was engaged. That was a long time ago. So we're not talking about a small sample size here. I've now been married for 20 years. I have children. I have twins that are 16. A lot has happened in my life. So we're not talking small sample size. Since the year 2000, the A's have the sixth best record in baseball. Only the Yankees, the Cardinals, the Dodgers, the Red Sox, And the Braves. I was kind of shocked by the Braves, by the way. But the Braves. Because that Braves run of winning all those, I mean, a lot of that's in the 90s. But the Yankees, Cardinals, Dodgers, Red Sox, Braves, then the A's are the winningest franchises since 2000. What's the one constant there? It's Billy Bean. That is something that should be celebrated. That is something that, We as A's fans, you think of all the games you've gone to since then, you think of all the playoff runs, you think that people would be happier. You think people would be like, that's really damn good. But for some reason, we always have a a negative cloud over our heads even when you want to be positive and talk about something like this. Think about that. You got 30 teams. You're in the top six since 2000. That means as a fan, the majority of the time, you went to a game, you watched it on TV. Think about about how much TV and radio has changed. Like Fox Sports, Comcast Sportsnet, Bay Area. Comcast Sportsnet, then California. Comcast Sportsnet California was actually 
a channel in Sacramento that the Kings was on. I actually did a 49er TV show on it. Had nothing to do with the Bay Area. It was out of Sacramento. Comcast morphed it into a Bay Area station and became a place that they could now, when you had Comcast Bay Area or even Fox Sports, you had the problem of having Warriors, Sharks, Giants, A's. They didn't have a, you know, where were they putting all these teams? So they morphed in this channel from Sacramento, called it Comcast Sportsnet California. Now that gave the A's and the Sharks a home and allowed Warriors and Giants to be on Comcast Sportsnet Bay Area to where we're now NBC Sports Bay Area in California. Think how many different stations we've been on radio-wise, terrestrial radio-wise. We've created A's cast. To combat, to combat that. I mean, so much has changed since 2000. But the one constant is the A's have won. And they've won big. A record of 1,851 wins to 1,609 losses. That's a winning clip of 535. Now, Cody, at the University of California, Pennsylvania, whatever hell of college you went to, as a math major, would you say a winning clip of 535 is pretty good in, in, in a span of over 20 years? In a span of over 20 years with, what, now three different roster turnovers? That's pretty impressive. 535. Yeah, only five That's teams. not 435. No. That's not 335. No. That's 535. 535, that's higher than only, you know, that only five other teams have higher, and no team in the A's division has a higher winning percentage over that time than, than they do. But yet, you would think that the A's had been under 500 for all those years. How many games, I, we went over this before, but do you remember how many games have, the, what is the most amount of games the A's have lost under Billy Bean during his tent since he took oh, over? Oh, it's not a lot. It's probably like 93, 4 range right around there. 94 was the most they ever lost, and that was. Not 100? Wasn't, no. The organization in Oakland has lost 100 games one time, and that was back in 1979. Look at you playing to the camera already. Yeah, you're playing right. to the audience, yes. All right, so check this out. Not only have we mentioned all the winning since 2000, did, did I forget to tell you about a, a best-selling book that everybody read? Amazing. Like, they have best-selling books. Like, what airport was I at? It might have been San Jose. It was either San Jose or Anaheim. It might have been San Jose. So, in one of the bookstores at the San Jose airport is they have the top 20 books that are on the New York Times bestsellers list. Well, just because... You know, how many people like to read those books? Everybody read Moneyball, though. It's crazy the amount of people that actually picked that book up, bought it, and read it. I remember Dave, was it Dave Pert? Dave Pert was the old VP of the 49ers. He came over from the Texans. He made everybody in the 49ers read that book. I remember whoever, was it Jameson was the old guy who ran the Sharks? Can't remember his first name. Uh, that's a great not, question. And not the drink. Yeah, uh, uh, his name was Jameson. Was the former president? He made everybody in the Sharks read the book. Everybody in sports read the book Moneyball, and then they finally got it done with a guy you might have heard of. His name's Brad Pitt, and the movie was up for an Oscar. So think of everything that's happened: a win streak of twenty straight games. You've had multiple MVPs. You had a Cy Young. You've had all this incredible drama. You're the only team in the history of baseball 
to never have led the division at any point during the season and still won the division. No team's ever done that. The A's in 2012 never led the division once until the final out of the year. Which, ten, ten years ago that was, by the way. Crazy. And, and think about that. It wasn't until that final out that they now led the division and won the division. That's never happened before in over 150 years of baseball. It was. I remember because I lived on. I was. I graduated college then, but I remember living on the East Coast before I moved here when they won the division, and just you know Ken's call and and Kipe's call. It was just. It was awesome. It was on. It was on MLB Network. It took over the nation. The run that the the A's won in, won on in 2012. You always talk about it. Look at the roster from the beginning of the year through midway through the year yeah. to the end of the year. Half the guys weren't even on it, and what the, what they half half. I was being nice. Am I being Jim Mora? Playoffs half. I just hope we can win a game. Your opening day starters were Brandon McCarthy and Bartolo Colon. Nowhere to be found. You had three starters start postseason games that were rookies. Uh, the whole Cliff Pennington now all of a sudden was at second base. Stephen Drew came out of nowhere. I mean, the whole team was different. The, Sean Doolittle coming out of the bullpen? The whole Sean Doolittle was like a Disney story. The whole thing was like it was like a completely different team. So what I'm trying to say is we're heading to spring training with all this in mind. Like you yeah, is this season gonna be great from a win loss perspective? Anything can happen. 2012 showed us that. But I'm going to go to spring training with, with the idea that hey, let's see, let, let's, let's 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 watch it play out. Am I expecting much? No. This is going to be a, you know, are any of these guys a part of the future? Is really your, what you're going to be doing. Now you got to field a team to try and win some games, but really, who's a part of the future? But let's not forget what's been going on. And I know people are going to crap on, well, what have they done in the playoffs? Can't debate you on that. They've won two playoff series. But still, the sixth winningest team in baseball since 2000. I will take that over a lot of crap baseball that a lot of people have watched for a long time. Yeah, I'm starting out super positive. I'm going to spring training. I want to have a good mindset. 11 postseason appearances during that time. 11. But yet we have this dark cloud. Yet we have this negativity that's always around the team. Sixth best record in baseball since 2000. Let's not forget that. So what do we say? Got to trust the process. They've proven they can do what they're doing and come back and win pretty quick. You have to trust the process. Since we love to play sample size theater and we love to use something and make it look like it's fact, I'm going to show you how this all plays out and how anybody can use numbers in baseball and make it look like that is the end-all, end-all. This is how we have to judge things. We have been told that the walk walks as good as a hit. Do I care how he gets on base? 
You don't. Wasn't that Moneyball? Do I care if it's a hit or a walk? Do I? No. As long as you get on base. Because that's all that matters, getting on base, right? Yeah. Because getting on base with walks, you'd think if you walk a lot, you would be one of the top run-producing teams in baseball. Because you're working the pitcher, which when you work the pitcher means he's pitching uh, a lot of pitches, which means you're then going to get into the bullpen because you want to get into that bullpen, right? Most likely, yes. All right, so let's play small sample size theater, as they like to do on MLB Now, and I'm going to prove my point based off something very small. One season. Not the last five seasons, not the last 10 seasons, 20 seasons, just last season. Who was the number one team in baseball last year in walks? Houston. You're not even in the top five. Uh, okay. If it wasn't Houston. Remember, Houston hits, which you you and your people think is overrated. They also You, you they want sh- walks. They don't strike out either. No, no. You want walks. Uh, let's see. Walks. Um... Walks. Who was number one in baseball in walks? Mm-hmm. Non-playoff team, I'm mm-hmm. assuming. Mm-hmm. Detroit. Mm-hmm. That's your answer? Well, I'm looking because I see Robbie Grossman was on the leaders in the league. The New York Yankees led all of baseball last year in walks was 621. Number two on the list would be the Los Angeles Dodgers. Number three would be the San Francisco Giants. And then there was a three-way tie uh, to round out the top five. So, really, it's six teams that qualified for the top five. Uh, So, they're tied at four. That's the White Sox, the Brewers, and the Padres. So those are your top five, which was actually six, in walks in baseball last year. All playoff teams but one. How did that translate to runs scored? Well, the Yankees are one of the worst offensive teams in baseball. No, 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 no. Can't be. They're number one in walks. But they were a terrible offensive team. How can you be a terrible offensive team when you walk? Because I'm told walks are so valuable and so important – all of these teams have to be the best offensive teams in baseball. Well, let's see. One of their players led the league in strikeouts, so that doesn't help. He also was one of the league leaders in walks. I can't listen to that because all I can listen to is when people tell me how valuable walks are. You told me it doesn't matter how I get on base as long as I get on base. So, the New York Yankees, number one in walks, were 19th in runs. One of the worst in the American League. 19th. Do you know that the only team to make the top five in runs scored and be a top five walk team was? The Giants. The Los Angeles Dodgers. Giants weren't one of the top run scoring teams? Giants were sixth. Oh, okay. Not in the top five. White Sox were seventh. Uh, Your Milwaukee Brewers, ooh, you're high on them. They were 12th in runs scored. So according, so if I was to write a book, I could write a book saying walks are overrated because it doesn't mean you're going to be one of the best offensive teams in baseball. Because the only thing that matters is run scored. That's the only thing that matters. You got to outscore the other team to win the game. 
However you score is however you score. But that is the number, I mean, unless I've completely lost my mind, is scoring runs not the most important offensive stat? Yeah, you're right. You're correct. Can I can I say can I be safe to say that, or has baseball got so crazy that we're not going to say that actually scoring runs is the most important stat? Oh no, it's the most important stat. Okay, so we can still agree on that. Yeah, we agree on that. Okay, uh, your number one run scoring teams, um, not big walk team in the Astros, uh, Tampa Bay Rays. They strike out a lot too. <laughs> uh, Toronto Blue Jays. Los Angeles Dodgers and Boston Red Sox. Those are your top five scoring teams last year in baseball. So it's interesting just because I'm reading this book, and the book, obviously to sell books, you want to use names because names are the hook, right? The names are when I can throw in, yeah, Jack Morris, Shouldn't be a Hall of Famer. And, yeah, Jacob deGrom. See, Jacob deGrom proves my – I'm using one year. I guarantee you that if I go through the last five, ten years, that teams that walked a lot probably were the top teams in runs scored. I bet you a lot of the teams would be the top. But I can show you one year it doesn't translate. That's why you can't can't trust these – Small sample sizes. You can't. You can't. You can't. You can't build a business, and you can't build a theory off outliers. That's why top things that you th- things that are successful. I usually use companies have an extraordinary amount of data. Procter and Gamble has been one of the top top companies in the United States of America for over a hundred years. That's where you get all your toilet paper, your toothpaste, and whatever you're buying at the grocery store you're getting from Procter & Gamble because they're a data-driven. That's why Amazon That's why Amazon is, you know, the most successful company in the world right now. They're data-driven, and they use a lot of data versus utilizing one person, one year, one this, trying to prove your point which we get a lot with our new analytical books. Cuz they don't you it's it's tough and I and to you know give them a little defense. Sports change, so it's kind of tough to hey, baseball in the 50s compared to baseball in 2022. I get it. But you can use x amount of years at x amount of decades and too many times I'm seeing like one name, one year, one this to prove a point. Would you at least give me that? Oh, there's always going to be there's always going to be the outliers. I mean, I, I always use the Grom, of course, but I'm I went back and just looked at 2019 for for walk leaders. Houston, playoff team. Milwaukee, playoff team. Now I want runs scored because because that is even they're a playoff team because well yeah well there's pitching there's defense there's a lot of things that go into it. I want walks to run scored. Where uh, did they rank? The Astros are number one in baseball, 645 walks. They rank third in runs scored. There you go. There's a top five team. Boston was a top five team in walks. They were fifth. They're fourth in runs scored. Okay, that's two. The Dodgers were fourth in walks. They were a they were the fifth ranked offense. So there you team. go. You got three. Th- there's my point. I only used one year to make me sound smart. I didn't go back and go through all these years because, like I said, 
you probably would find teams that lead the league in walk usually are probably high up there on runs scored. But I can find one outlier year. I found my Jacob deGrom. It was 2022. You know, I'm looking at this. One of the least walked teams in 2019 just so happened to be the team that had the most home runs in the history of baseball, but they're the, also one of the highest scoring teams of baseball. The Twins. So I found you an outlier. <laughs> well, I, I – I find also interesting um, Yankees too. kind of throwing out the triple crown. Like the home run and the RBI are so tied to each other that so many instances in the history of baseball, the guy that hits the most home runs leads the league in RBIs. It's happened 40, can't remember what I read, but it was like 40-something times it's happened. So it's not... It's not crazy to think that the guy that hits the most home runs is going to lead the league in RBIs because the two stats are so connected together. Well, it happened last year with Sal Perez, leader in home runs and uh, RBI. Uh, didn't have a, I mean, his batting average is okay. He doesn't walk a lot, but that's okay because he hits a lot of home runs. He hit 48 of them. That scored 48 runs just by himself. So I was looking at just the, the base on ball leaders from well, last you know year. Who, you know who gets love in this book? And going back to Anthony Castrovince, a fan's guide to baseball analytics, is a player that was completely, uh, you can't say ahead of his time, but he did things that if he played today, he would be looked at differently. And he is a friend of the program. That is the great Gene Tennis. Gene Tennis, back in the day, was a walk machine. He walked 101 times in 73, 110 times in 74, 81 times in 76, 125 in, in 1977, 101 in 78, and 105 in 1979. Ray Kroc, remember he went and played for the Padres. Ray Kroc, the McDonald's guy who owned the Padres at the time, and it's in this book that says all he does is walk. But if you're a guy walking, a hundred, I mean, he'd basically be, in a way, kind of like Joey Votto. 129 home runs, 106 walks. Now, obviously, guys weren't hitting home. They played in different ballparks, harder to hit home runs at the Coliseum than it is at the Great American Band Box. But, yeah, if, if Gene Tennis played today and put up 30 home runs and 100 walks, People would love him. I agree with that. 100%. Padres could Padres couldn't wait to get rid of him. That was he, that was actually a question on Twitter a few weeks ago. I think it was high heat stats. They 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 take a they take like a screenshot of a, a baseball reference by, uh, player's career and they take off like the team or like the age or whatever to make it harder. And it's like name this player based on their stats. And one of them, uh, I think it was like two weeks ago, was Gene Tennis because he was like this catcher wasn't the best when it came to batting average, but he did walk a lot. And, and I remember looking, I'm like, who is this? And I looked, and I was like, oh, it's Gene Tennis. But I was looking at just the walk leaders from last year. Do you know who led baseball in walks last year? Nope. It was Juan Soto with 145 walks. Where did the Nationals rank? Uh, they weren't very good. That's uh, obviously not his fault. Where where was he in runs scored? Uh, let's see, runs Now, base Orbans when he was at the top ten, he was six. He was tied with Jose Ramirez at one eleven. So others on the list, 
Joey Gallo of 111. He also struck out 213 times. Uh, Bryce Harper, the MVP, walked 100 times. Robbie Grossman walked 98 times. Otani, 96. Matt Olson, 88. Grandal with 87. Um, Carlos Santana at 86. And that was tied with Vlad Guerrero Jr. at 86 and Freddie Freeman at 85. If you look through this list, Votto play, or Votto, Gallo played for a playoff team ha- halfway through the end. So I guess I can include him. We'll do him as a half. Three and a half, two and a half guys made the postseason last year, and there were league leaders in walks. My 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 interest in this great walk debate is certain guys have the ability to draw walks. One of the reasons why is they have power, and pitchers are afraid at times to throw certain strikes to guys that can leave the yard. Pretty simple? I agree, yeah. Okay. So those guys can get walks. Now, the problem is, and I don't have any data to back me on this, I guess with StatCast we would now, but I could use a couple guys that have played here in the Bay Area. And when Billy Bean looks over to Paul D. Podesta and Moneyball and says, do I care if he gets on base with a walk or a hit? You do not. True. But how do I score a slow lumbering guy? That's something that doesn't get factored in. Gene Tennis is not a track star. I'll give you two other guys, Jack Cust and Brandon Belt. They're not track stars. So the argument could be Gene Tennis, well, it's not his fault. I mean, he got on base. He did his job. Okay. But for a guy who walked a lot, he sure didn't score a whole heck of a lot of runs. For example, he led the league in walks with 110. Scored 71 times. Led the league in walks with 125, scored 66. So you'd really need, I mean, obviously, I was a little kid. I don't don't remember. But, like, how hard was it to score Gene Tennis from first when he walked? Incredibly hard, it seems like. Because if you're not, I mean, if you're not fast... You're not going to be able to get around the bases that quick. Now, now there's things that they're trying to do now with moving second base around to try to make more runs scored. But for a guy like Gene Tennis, it's going to be hard to you know, qualify that with him trying to score from first on a ball in the gap. Um, they'll probably, they're probably holding him a third three, two out of three times. For instance, Joey Votto's not slow. Yeah, I, I don't know what he runs like now. He's not Albert Pujols no, back no. in the day. Okay, so... When, so I'm going to give you Joey Votto at a young age, 27 years old, walked 110 times, scored 101 runs. At the age of 29, walked 135, scored 101. Uh, walked 143, scored 95. One year, walked 108, scored 101. And then another year, uh, walked 134, uh, scored 
106. That's more like I would want to see it, right? If you're walking 100-plus times, you're scoring near 100 runs. So, yeah, is it great that a guy is feared and he gets walked a lot? Sure. But how am I scoring him becomes my question. Whether that's fair or not to him, probably not fair. But no, how, hard, how hard is it to, like, you know, say, well, it's not as hard. But how many hits do I need to get to score him from first? Probably, I would say two. Unless it's obviously a home run negates that. But two. You get a double, maybe a double, he might go to third. Then I said hits. It's two. You think two base hits gets Gene Tennis home? Well, if you hit a double and then a single. All right, I'm saying, okay, no extra base hits. How many hits do I need? Oh, uh, three? Three, yeah, probably. I need three straight singles or a three or I need somebody to walk. That, that. I don't know how we would look at that. I don't know if there's a metric to look at that, but wouldn't that be interesting to find out? Like, big guys who hit home runs, who are feared, who walk, but they're slugs on the bases. They're never going to have great run-scoring numbers. The first guy I thought of when you were t- like, talking about modern baseball and we think about guys at home runs and get and walked a lot, he's a bad example because he actually led the league in runs scored. Uh, Vlad Guerrero Jr., when you think Vlad Guerrero Jr., do you think a track star? No, but he he can – I don't he can think move. of him as – Like, he's not uh, Pablo Sandoval running bases. No. He's not Buster Posey. He's not popping his belt, let's yeah. be honest. But he did score 123 runs, and he walked, I think, 86 times. And he also hit how many home runs? 40 – what, he hit 40-something? But the Jays also had three guys in the top five in runs scored last year. But those are all guys hitting at the top of that lineup. So you're 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 – your question about Gene Tennis, the three hits, I mean, you could say that about a lot of catchers probably in the game too. Let me let me, let me, me give you Jack Cust, our old buddy Jackie Cust. Jack Cust walked 105 times in 2007 at the age of 28. How many runs scored do you think he had? Uh, 67. 61. That was a great guess. Oh, so he walked 105 times. Struck out 164. <laughs> Joey Votto, or Joey Gallo. Yeah, but you would look at his OPS, and you go, hey, he had a 9-12 OPS. It's above league, above league average. It's way above league average. What was his OPS plus? Uh, 146. Oh, he's, a, he's in like in the superstar category. That's why you go, but I watched him play, and no, he was not. How many home runs did he hit that year? He had 26. Okay. And everybody gets happy. Ah, 26 home runs. Struck out 164 times, walked 105, only scored 61 runs. Actually, let me see, let me see how many runs Joey, Joey Gallo scored. So, last. hey, how about the next year? He led the league in walks with 111. How many times do you think he scored? 111 walks, uh, 57. 77. Okay, so one up a little bit. Struck out 197 times. Was the franchise record. Was is the key word there. Yeah, Matt Chapman would blow by that. But I, I wonder, like, how we could really look at this to say, yeah, like the fact the guy got on base so much, but, man, he didn't score a whole heck of a lot of runs. And if you start blaming everybody else, because that, that would be the argument, right? They would say, well, it's not his fault. It's the people around him. And then I just wonder, how hard is it to get him in? Let me look. There's one guy I'm going to look at right now. 
the guy that led baseball in home runs last year. Sal Perez scored 88 runs. Okay, that's actually pretty good. For a guy that only walked, let's see, how many times did Sal walk last year? Um, it was really bad after one point. He only had like nine walks after a certain date. Sal Perez last year in six in 620 at-bats, how many times do you think he walked? We're what? talking about the best home run hitter in the game last year. How many times did he walk? Let's just say 54. 28. Jeez. He struggled 170 times. He had a 273 batting average. Every year in his career that he's been playing, you know, over 130 games, how many times has he broken 30 walks in a season? Say that again. So every so Sal Perez has been in the league. We'll include he's been in the league 10 years, the one year he missed because of Tommy John surgery. He's been in the league 10 years. Every year, if you don't count the COVID season, from 2013 on, he's played in at least 130 games. How many walks? How many times has he broke 30 walks in a season? Once. Never. Never. His career high in walks was last year, 28. He's going hacking. And he could be a potential Hall of Famer. This is a guy that never walks whatsoever. He's going hacking. Yeah, well, he struck out 170 times last year, 108 in 2018, 95. So he's broken 100 strikeouts three times in his career. But, I mean, it always blew my mind when you look at him for what he did last year. He walked 28 times in 620 at-bats. But a guy like Jack Cuss can be horrible on defense, walk 111 times, strike out almost 200 times. You'd be like, oh, but he had an 851 OPS. <laughs> I'm gonna that's uh, I'm gonna pull up one other guy that was a big home run hitter in the Bay Area. Let's see how many times uh, how many times Dave Kingman uh, led the league in walks. That'd be uh, Kong. That'd be uh, oh, never, never. He did. He did uh, get sixty. Uh, he walked over sixty times once. How many times did he score a hundred runs? A uh, hundred runs. N- never. Let me see. I'm, I'm, never, never in his career did he score a hundred runs. But he did strike out one thirty one, one fifty six, one nineteen, one fourteen. But he also led the league in home runs two different times. But never walked and never scored a lot of runs. And also when you hit home runs is also, a, there. you know, are you the guy that hits the home run when the team's up 6-2 or down 6-2? Or that was the one thing about Chris Davis that I will always give Chris Davis credit for. There was a span for X amount of years where Chris Davis, he hit home runs and they truly meant something. They were tying games up. They were putting the A's in the lead. They were extending leads. He hit them when they mattered. I'm not, I, you know, if you hit X amount, of, you know, X amount of home runs, they matter. But it was like they used to come up with, you know, A Rod never hit home runs from the seventh inning on. You know, it was not hitting home runs that you know that that really changed the score or changed the outcome. I should say of the game. That's what Chris Davis did. That's why he was so lethal when he had his time. Now, Dallas Braden's going to join us. And let's ask Dallas as a pitcher, as a guy who had such great control. And, I mean, Dallas, if he walked somebody, majority of the time, he was walking them because he wanted them to walk. He wanted to put them on. 
He was working. He was working it to in his favor. Cruising around last night, looking at stuff that we were going to talk about today. I think one thing all A's fans that we can't agree on is that we hate the Yankees. And I cannot believe that a man that has accomplished so much in his career, and I can just, I can hear Billy Bean in my ear telling me I'm an idiot right now, but I would debate him on this. This is a historically bad look for a man that has been as successful as any front office person in the history of the game under the most pressure of anybody that's ever been in this game. Brian Cashman has had to deal with great success and still George Steinbrenner was all over as you know what. He reinvented the Yankees as they were one of the best teams in the history of baseball. Like, he got help from Billy Bean on how to do analytics, and he built an analytics department while he still had one of the great teams of all time. He saw the future, and he had the money that, why are we going to go pay someone to do numbers for us? We'll create our own numbers. They have, as of right now, and they've had for many years, the largest analytical department in baseball. And they've had guys come out of their department, like a Billy Epler, who's now a GM for the second time. And he's had all this success. What a career. And then he comes out and does an interview with The Athletic that was so ridiculous that you wonder if he's losing it. Because the Yankees have not won a World Series since 2009. Their last World Series before that would have been, what, 2000? Yeah, because they lost in 01 to the D-backs, then 02 was the Angels. So they've won one since 2000. We already went over the A's since 2000. The A's have the sixth best record in baseball since 2000. The Yankees in that time have the number one record. And they have won only one World Series. But what you have to look at during that time is the amount of money they have spent during that time to win World Series, and they've come away with one. That's where the pressure is. Because at some point, making the playoffs every year, Yes. Is that good for the franchise? No doubt. Is that good for business? No doubt. But as a GM to where your job is to win games, at some point, people are going to go, hey, man, you haven't won since 09. What's the deal? And instead of owning that, where you have all these rings and all these great years and everything that you've done as the, as the head of the Yankees baseball operations, You basically say, I dispute that. I'm going to dispute the notion that we have not won since 2009 
because we were cheated in 2017 by the Astros. Quote, the only thing that stopped the 2017 Yankees was something that was so illegal and horrific. So I get offended when I start hearing we haven't been in the World Series since 09. Because I'm like, well, I think we actually did it the right way. Pulled it down, pulled it down, brought it back, drafted well, traded well, developed well, signed well. The only thing that derailed us was a cheating circumstance that threw us off. End quote. So you're going to blame cheating, which, by the way, there is a letter that is in the courts right now about the Yankees stealing that's supposed to stealing signs. It's supposed to go public, but right now the Yankees are fighting it in court to not allow it to go public. Because if that goes public, and you just made these comments? We know the Red Sox cheated. They they cheated. They've been, they've been caught multiple times. We know the Yankees cheated. But now you're going to claim that you haven't been to the World Series. But people aren't just saying World Series, let's be honest. He's saying that. People are saying you haven't won one. Isn't it funny how he changed the verbiage there? People are saying we haven't been to the World Series. I haven't heard one person say that. I've heard everybody say, you haven't won a World Series since 2009. He, I mean, that's how gutless. This is so gutless in so many ways. Let's break it down. It's gutless from the standpoint of you're blaming cheating when your own organization is in court right now trying to keep a letter from being made public that talks about your cheating. So you're calling somebody names, and you did the exact same thing. And everybody's saying, no no one thinks the Yankees going to the World Series is successful, whether it's the ALCS, where it's winning the World Series. You twisted it and said, people, I've been hearing people said we haven't been to the World Series since 09. No, people are saying you haven't won the World Series since 09. And you've spent billions of dollars. Think about it. When your payroll is over 200-something million every year, you start adding it up all these years, it gets to be billions of dollars. And you haven't won. And you're going to blame? First of all, how do we know, even if you got to the World Series, you would win it? You're, yeah. you're going to just assume you're going to beat the Dodgers? Yeah, and then in 2019 when you lost to the Astros on the Jose Altuve home run against Aroldis Chapman, you just assume you're going to go and run right through the Nationals? Come yeah, on. I mean – where are we at, Cash? I mean, you talk you talk about a team that is, you know, the prestige, it's the Yankees. Currently right now, the more entertaining team is the team in Queens. It's the Mets. All they're talking about is Steve Cohen and the Mets and the money and the excitement. And what did you do this offseason? Resigned Anthony Rizzo? You brought in Josh Donaldson and Kiner Falefa? Could be great moves. I don't know. Are you the best team in your division? I mean, all these years, ah, the Rays are the second fiddle. They're the little brother to the Yankees, and the Rays have been whooping their ass, scoring way more runs. Your star player, 
who it's rumored that, you know, what are they going to do with Aaron Judge? They can't even get their they can't even get their star guy inked up. Can you imagine Aaron Judge leaving the Yankees as a free agent? That would like back in the day, why what, you're going to leave the Yankees? Like Jeff Passon put out his whole article for 2022. He's got Judge could be one of the guys traded. Could they trade Judge? I don't know. I just – you're blaming not winning, not going to the World Series, and essentially not winning the World Series on the Astros cheating. Hey, listen, you still got to play the game. You still have the, – the, the game is still the fundamentals. It's in every single game. Still got to hit the ball. You still got to pick the ball up. You still got to throw it. You still got to play good, de- you know, good defense, good offense. Good. I mean, you could get up there as a pitcher and tell them every pitch that's coming. Doesn't mean you need to give up ten runs. Fastball, fastball, slot. I mean, you could get up there. You still got to play the game. I mean, they can know everything that's going on. Could, 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 could put it this way. Because you can talk about the Yankees this way. If Tex Winter, do you know what Tex Winter is? Yeah, the better the triangle offense. Yeah, so if Tex Winter on the bench of the Chicago Bulls yelled out every single play to the opposing team, and you got Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, do you think the Bulls are losing titles? If Michael Jordan said, all right, this is what Larry Bird used to tell people what he was going to do. Go look on YouTube. Larry Bird would be like, all right, they're going to set a pick for me here. I'm going to go there, and I'm going to shoot over you to win the game. Larry Bird, it's legendary, Larry Legend. It's legendary, Larry Bird would tell the opposition the play. He would tell them the play, and then he'd go and do it. It's one of the reasons why he's one of the greatest players of all time. You don't think Michael Jordan could come down the court and go, I'm going here. What are you going to do about it? Did you really need – do you really, like, Showtime Lakers, did you not know what they were doing? Is Magic Johnson running up and down the floor, throwing the ball all over. I mean, you knew what they were doing. There's been plenty of football teams that go, this is what we do. We can give you our playbook. These are the plays we run, and we're going to run it down your throat. What are you going to do about it? Like, seriously, this is this is baseball. Randy Johnson could get up there, and you could know every pitch that was coming. Nolan Ryan, every pitch that was coming, he could throw a no-hitter against you. There's some pitchers, Bartolo Colon, in a game against the Angels. I can't remember what year. If one of the A's broadcasters was listening, it was down in Anaheim. Bartolo Colon, I swear to God, threw like 23 straight strikes. They were all two-seam fastballs. It was like 23 or 24 straight strikes. And it was the same pitch over and over and over and over and over again. Everybody in the ballpark knew what was coming. I was sitting on my couch watching it. Everybody knew what was coming. It was. It looks like it's 2012, and it wasn't 23. It was 38. 38 straight strikes. <laughs> Did anybody think anything else was happening? He threw the same pitch. 30. It's not 38. Was it 38? It says. It said. It said 38. Can't be. That was like 24 or something like that. Yeah. In fact, he threw 38 consecutive strikes, a record for the most strikes in a row thrown since pitch data began beginning recorded in 1988. 38 straight. <laughs> and they were all the same pitch. 
He uh, was not throwing slider, wasn't throwing a change. It was his two-seam fastball over and over and over again. I mean, think about that. It's remarkable. Just, just think about that. Brian Cashman is saying they got cheated, which, by the way, I don't have the numbers. Did the Astros win any, any, any of the games at Yankee Stadium? I can look that up real quick. You're, you're, you're blaming your World Series of them cheating when obviously you were cheating. But did, did, did they win every game at Yankee Stadium that series? Uh, pulling up right now. Let's see. They won. No. Actually, they lost every game at Yankee Stadium. Okay. Even more does this 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 quote. Do you see why I said if I'm the owner, I call him up and go, Cash, what what what, what are you talking about, man? What are we talking about here? They lost eight one six four five nothing in those three games. They lost all three games at Yankee Stadium. Yep. You're saying you didn't make the World Series. Your fan base is saying you didn't win the World Series because the Astros cheated and you lost all three games at home. You don't think that's a credibility hit? No, no, they won all three games at home. The Astros didn't win any games in New York. Sorry. Oh, okay. I read I it the wrong way. Sorry, no. Yeah, no. Now the, you're making me look bad. No, no. The, Ast- the Astros did not win one game in New York. They won all three games at home. But the Astros won all three games in Houston, or all four games in Houston. Steph Curry out for the regular season. Yeah, they said he'll be reevaluated on April 11th, the day after the regular season ends. So the Yankees won every game at home. Yep, they won games three, four, and five at home. And then the Astros won every game at home. Every game at home, yeah. So the Yankees couldn't win a road game. But the Astros couldn't win a road game. Yeah, neither of them could. But that's why the the, the Astros. It would have been better if they would have lost at least one game at Yankee Stadium. (laughs) That way it would have been split up, yeah. If you're a Yankee fan and you hear that, what are you saying? Someone that grew up on the East Coast, they're probably all behind cash on this. That's right, the Astros did cheat us out of a World Series. Really? You'd feel that way? If I was a Yankee fan? I, I would oh, I guarantee you, my, my buddy Brandon Tierney's hammering him. So he, uh, the Yankee fans I know aren't buying this at all. Yeah, I don't think they are. This to me is just an excuse. Yeah, you haven't you haven't won a World Series since 2009. Like that whole that whole decade went on from 2010 to 2020. That you spent it was all that money over 200 million a year. They, it was like a hundred years since the last time they won a decade without reaching the World Series. It was like the 1910s, the 1920. Then you reached the World Series. A hundred years went by. When you have X amount of people not trying in the sport. Yeah, one of them's in your division. Oh, you had multiple ones in your division. Toronto a couple of years ago yeah. wasn't trying. Baltimore. You got multiple. Houston, Houston wasn't for three years. You got multiple teams in your division that weren't trying. You've got X amount, like, like literally we could go over. Anything can happen in sports. We could play that game. But let's just, like going into this year, let's go to standing. All right, I don't even need to go. All right. Give me a yay or an A on they could win the World Series this year. We'll start in your vaunted American League East. Baltimore. No. Boston. No. They can't win the World Series? I don't think they will, no. I don't think their pitching's good enough. You don't think that something could happen they win the World Series? No. Not this year. There's no chance? No. Chris Hill's healthy, I changed my mind. You'd put your life on that? Yes. 
Okay. Uh, New York Yankees. Yes. Tampa Bay Rays. Yes. Toronto Blue Jays. Absolutely. Atlanta Braves. Yes. Marlins. No. Mets. Yes. Phillies. No. Nationals. No. White Sox. Yes. Guardians. No, nobody rests. No one. No one else in that division. So that's Guardians, Tigers, Royals, Twins, Cubs. No. Reds. No. Brewers. No. Oh, Brewers. Yes. Pirates. <laughs> no. Cardinals. No. Don't think of the pitching. Okay. Astros. Yes. Angels. No. A's. No. Mariners. No. Rangers. No. D-backs. No. Rockies. No. Dodgers. Yes. Padres. No. Giants. No. So you got 21 teams you say can't win the World Series. 21 teams out of out of 30 you have just said have no chance. I think there seems better than them. That's why. 21. Yeah. Not half the sport. You just went not even half the sport. You went the majority yeah. of the sport cannot yeah. win. So if you're the Yankees, you don't have that many. According according to according to Cody, you can't beat eight other teams on the World Series. That's all there is. Because you're the ninth. You're, there's a eight teams that stand in your way. There's two. T- I picked what three teams in the AL, the NL. When it was the Mets, the Brewers, and the the Dodgers. That's actually not a good state for the game. No, Braves, Brewers, and Dodgers, sorry. That's not a good state to say that the majority of the league has no chance. Yeah, it's not. Well, you didn't even get – where. Yeah, I mean, you didn't even give, like, kind of chance. You just said no chance. Yeah, I, well, there's there's reason why. I, like with the Red Sox, I don't believe in their pitching. Cardinals, I don't believe in their – Jack Flaherty's hurt. I don't believe in their pitching. I mean, but just to play devil's advocate, you would have said this about the Braves last year. Oh, yeah, once, especially when – even in the – even in season one, Ronald Acuna got hurt. I, totally. Yeah, but we're we're gonna go, Cashy. You got eight teams to beat. Good luck. I mean, if you don't win this year, whose fault? Whose fault's it this year? Their own, because they didn't sign anybody. They signed Reef, signed Rizzo. Cool, and you took on Josh Donaldson's contract. All righty, I want to give you some numbers. 55, 61, and 60. 55 in 2018, 61 in 2019, and 60 in 2021. And just for giggles here, 21 in 2020, that was actually the COVID year. What are those numbers? Run them for me again. 2018, 55, 2019, 61, 2021, 60, and for the COVID year, 21. Those sound like innings pitched? That is games played by Josh Hader. Okay, yeah. So Josh Hader, 2018, pitched in 55 games. 2019, pitched in 46, excuse me, 61. 2021, 60, 
And in the shortened season, pitched 21, which, by the way, he led all of baseball with 13 saves that year. Last year at 34. Point is, that is a lot of games. 55, 61, 60, and then for the 68, 21. How can you possibly? And I don't think this is, you know, one thing Mark Kotze, unfortunately, is going to have to answer questions that are legitimate questions that a manager has to answer in in a season when you have a team that doesn't have so much influx. But he's got a team that's so up in the air with what's going to go on He's going to get regular questions when he's not going to have regular answers. It's just what it is, right? Katsai has got a team of a lot of – I I mean, can you imagine – we'll track this, what the opening day roster will look like and then what the roster looks like at the end of the year. It'll be like two different – Like 2012, 10 years later. <laughs> so how could you possibly think A.J. Puck? And he was – at and, and, and Katsai was asked, you know, A.J. Puck – could he be the Josh Hader role? And, of course, Katze's got to answer, yeah, we could see that happening. And I just think, like, oh, my God. A.J. Puck in the Josh Hader role. Can you see A.J. Puck in a year throwing 60 games? No, I want to believe it because you know that I've, I've been on board with him being a reliever for years now. Um, and you know how much I love Josh Hader, former starter like A.J. Puck, both former starters, both hard-throwing left-handed pitchers. I always thought A.J. Puck was in a good parallel with Hader and Andrew Miller, the recently retired Andrew Miller, who kind of started this role of the multiple-inning reliever who comes in who's not your closer, but he's more dominant than your closer essentially is. He gets you to the closer, the I guess the bridge guy. But Andrew Miller was phenomenal in this role for the Indians and you know now Guardians and the, and the Red Sox. If A.J. Puck can stay healthy, and I know he's added like 25 pounds this offseason oh after working God. with a nutritionist. Oh, oh, my God. I'm not saying he could oh do it, God. but I'd like to see him try it. Be oh, tr- my God. What other option do you have in that role? Oh, my God. You're, 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 I, I wish people could see how I feel right now. Oh, this is the disgusted, warm out, worn out look. Do you see it? I'm right, doing well, it for the camera. I see it. Oh. Did you really just go the if he's healthy? Well, you have to. Unfortunately, you have to play that card. <laughs> okay. Well, can can I mean you can because you're Doctor Cliche. I'm going to go to reality. Most games he's ever pitched is, wait for it, twenty nine. That was in the minor leagues, right? Twenty nine. Yeah. Forget what whatever league you want to talk about. The most games. He is pitched is 29. He's in the prime of his career. He's going to be 27 years old this year. Right? Yeah. What's his birthday? Uh, hold on. Let me see. He played. He did it. Let me go up. Uh, he was in 12 games last year for the A's. Not a good ERA. He'll be 20, 27 in April 25th. He turns 27 this month. Most games he's ever thrown is 29 in the minor leagues. Josh Hader is going to be 28 this this month as well. So he Josh Hader's a year older. So you want him to be like the guy who's doing it at the big league level at the highest. He's just a year older than him. 
Yeah, I want him to be that guy. Yes. You want him to be that guy. Why, who who wouldn't want him to be that guy if he could? Well, I want to be Batman. How's that going to work? Uh, it's not. It's, it wouldn't work because you don't have the money that Bruce Wayne does. You could put the suit on. But I want to be. Well, I, I don't know. Better invest, Better start a business and make a lot of money. <laughs> I'd love to be Batman, but am I going to be Batman? Uh, no, probably not. So, Josh Hader is 28. By the first month of the season, A.J. Puck's going to be 27. Hader has already logged 55 games or more in three seasons, and the most you've ever got out of Puck is 29 at the minor league level. But you want him to be – you want Puck to be Hader. Is that fair? It's. I don't think it – no, it's not fair at all. The, the lump like, it. I can't even compare A.J. Puck to anybody because he hasn't been able to play. I think you could – I think – you, it's unfair to compare him to Hater, but that's a a, a, real, a goal that he should strive strive to be. He might not get there, but strive to be the best guy in that role that you can be. Why why wouldn't you want to be that guy? You have to set goals for yourself. What do you want to do? Is, I want to go out and be a consistent reliever. That's great. Why yeah. don't you want to go out and be Josh Hater? He is the guy that's he's how how tall is Hater? He's six feet. So AJ Puck has four inches on him, and he weighs more than him. So be that guy that throws just as hard as you and gets guys out. We're not asking you to start, every, you know, every five days. We want you to pitch a couple times a week. Has he ever been able to do that? He hasn't, so he needs to prove that first. Just prove that you could do that for a year. Then so you want to compare him to the elite guy, and you can't even get him out on the mound. I, th- I think you need to. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm all about positivity, but I, I've also heard of something called Baby steps. Yeah. go Baby step your way through maybe building You know towards. what baby steps is? He actually can play a season. That's what I mean. That was going to say. At any level. Go, I was going to say go through. Not any level. Not, not the big league level. Any level. Any level of competition. He has not played a full season at tw- – I'm calling him 27 because he turns 27 this, this month. month. Yeah. At 27 years old, he has not played a full season once. Fair. It's, it's, I don't it's, even know. I, I'm not going to go back, but I don't even know how great his health was at Florida. Also, a good question. I wonder if I can, I can pull up his college stats, probably. And now we want to ask him to be Josh Hader? I think that's a long term goal to strive for. Long term? He's 27. How long do you need? You only have so many years. Hey, Josh Hader wasn't always Josh. He was a former starting pitcher that they converted to a reliever. I think that's something I'm doing this year. I'm calling out. I'm I, and, I, and I heard it this morning taking my kids to school, listening to uh, that. My our guys weren't there, Duquette and Farron. Well, because we're going to see them tomorrow in Arizona. Power Alley. Uh, they had two guys. I had no idea who they were. It was just the whole show was cliches. I think I'm calling out old cliches in baseball this year. Do we need Do we need to have Feldy on again and do the top old cliches in baseball? I think I'm going to like like just the like the things that people say. Every they just regurgitate the same points every single year. Why? Just because people have been regurgitating the same points for over and over again. I think you should be this, and I think you da 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 da. da you know, like, how could you even think about AJ Puck and Josh Hader in the same sentence? Because it's a long-term goal that I have. I want to see him do it. Great. But I also want to have children, and I'm not I, there yet either. I want to see Jed Lowry have 49 doubles again. Okay, that could happen though. He's proven to do it before. Oh, you're saying Jed Lowry could happen, but you're saying A.J. Puck can't? Jed Lowry has what we call a track record. I mean, I just couldn't believe I was just like, man, okay. I think it's a lot, I think that's a lot of pressure to put on A.J. 
I think AJ right now has to be able to show up every day, play catch, work out, get in shape, throw bullpens, get into games, recover, and then hit the hit the repeat button. Yes. As someone who's got to talk about this every single day, I would love nothing better than than for him to be Josh Hader. Would love that. That would be incredible. I would love him to be, what was the other one? Look at the two guys he's been compared to. Andrew Miller. Randy Johnson. No, Randy oh, oh, Johnson. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Right? He was like mini Randy Johnson, Hall of Famer, and Josh Hader. It's like we're at a point that this guy has to prove he can be a professional. So let's slow down with Josh Hader and not ask. That's not, that's, you know, it's really not fair to ask Mark Kotze that. But, once again, Mark Kotze is going to get asked normal questions even though he doesn't have a normal ball club. And he's got to answer them. So I will defend Mark Kotze all year long going, you know what, I understand the press has to do their job. They have to do their job. And you got to, you know, our beat's got to come up with stories, right? That's their job. Martin Gallegos, Kawahara, everybody, they got to come up with stories. And they're going to ask Kotze the questions. And whether it's fair or not, he's got to answer them. But Randy Johnson to Josh Hader to he's got to show up, work out, prepare his body, play catch, throw bullpens, long toss, all the different things that they need to work on with him. He's got to be able to throw bullpens. He's got to be able to get in games, and he's got to be able to recover so he could get more games. That's simplistic. He's got to be able to take the ball when the organization needs him to take the ball. And that's not 12 times a year plus a ton of rehab. Because then all of a sudden you're 27 years old and people start thinking you're a career rehab guy. Which is a horrible feeling you never want for a, a player. But, man, fine. You want to put expectations. You want a wish list. You want all this kind of stuff. I need him to be able to show up every day and be able to take the ball when the team needs him to take the ball. It's that simple. That's not that's not crazy. You know what? I have no problem. Merkin's got a lot going on. We can, because I, I still got to get on Cashman. If you want, tell Merck and say, hey, listen, we know it's a busy day. We can do another day. Okay, yeah. That's fine, because I know we, we have this in Cashman. Yeah. But I, I'm not, I, I actually think I'm the one being fair to A.J. Puck. Right? Yeah, I mean. I think you're not being fair. Well, I, sa- I said that I think it's, it's unfair to put that pressure on him. But I think it's a goal to strive for. I, a, a goal is to be able to show up and do your job. That's that that should be his that that's that should be our goal for him, not some comparing him to somebody else who is a different person in a different organization. Our goal, his goal, should be to be able to show up and play. Like I, I understand in sports we like to do comparisons. Hey, would you like to be Tom Brady? I'd love to be Tom Brady. Would you like to be Michael Jordan? Oh, wouldn't that be awesome? Hey, how about Tiger Woods or Jack Nicholas's career? Would you take that since the Masters coming up? 
Nicholas won six. Tigers won four. Wouldn't you like to have their career? Would love to have those, but let's be let's let's get some honesty here. Let's get some let's you can't have any goal about performance if you're not healthy. That's your number one goal right there is just to be healthy. Number two goal is to get on the field and just play. I agree. That's where we are with him. I I I mean, Josh Hader, <laughs> I'm just like Jesus, what are we talking about here? I mean, I need this kid to, I mean, when he gets a full season, when he gets a full year of not going on the disabled list and logs a full year of playing time, our conversation next year at this time could be completely different. And I do think this, uh, maybe, let me see what you think about this. If, say, he say he makes the opening day roster, which he might, and he's in the bullpen, and say he does struggle coming out the gates. Do you send him back to Las Vegas where last year he had a 6.10 ERA in 2019 pitching in there? He had a 5.73 ERA. We know Vegas and the uh, PCL, the Pacific Coast League, is a hitters friendly league. Do you send him back down here when he already ha- struggling like that could hurt his confidence even more. I think you let him work through it this year in the majors if he's struggling. Well, and the, if he could stay on the he can pitch. There's a major difference. Last year, you were playing to go to the playoffs. This year, we're in discovery mode. I, AJ Puck, you're to, to, if I'm making the decisions, AJ Puck, you're on the roster. I don't care how bad you're throwing. As long as you're healthy, I'm going to keep sending you out there. He's 27 years old. He's a college guy. He's a first-round pick. College guys... You're supposed to only be in the minors for a couple, you know, not that long, a couple of years, especially as a pitcher. You're supposed to, like, show up, be successful. Now, injuries are a part of it, as we know. Okay, but you're supposed to, like, go out there and get people out and come to the big leagues and help out. Dan Hayes joins us from The Athletic. He covers the Minnesota Twins, who have been wheeling and dealing this offseason here on A's Cast Live. Dan, how are we? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, guys. So what's it like? I mean, the last time I was there, <laughs> I was uh, I was actually there with the Raiders at the time, and I went over to uh, – I went over to the ballpark, which I think Target Target Field is one of the best that we have in Major League Baseball. Um, there's been a lot of success in Minnesota, a lot of home runs. Uh, there's been some change, but how fired up are people for 2022 in the Minnesota Twins? I, I think they are very fired up, but they would be a lot more fired up if they were able to maybe acquire uh, a certain starting pitcher or two. Uh, one one of the guys maybe on the uh, the team you guys cover, but um, yeah, I think for the most part they are they are pretty fired up. The Carlos Correa move uh, last week really got things going for sure. I absolutely love that deal, and I got multiple reasons why. You ready? Yep. You get them the hell out of our division. We don't have to deal with them anymore. <laughs> That's number one. But number two is in the end. You still, with that ballpark, want to make a splash. He's a big name. The Twins did not have to make this stupid, crazy, long-term commitment that they'll regret. It could be a one-year deal, a two-year deal, a three-year deal. Whatever it turns out, you got a premier player 
in his prime, you're paying him good, but you're getting his prime years, and in the end, you won't get stuck with a bad deal. Are people looking at it that way? Absolutely, and, and even if it is one year, and, and, and we'll go into another part of that uh, as to why it's great for him, but even if it is just the one year, you like you said, you are getting a, a premier superstar who chose the Twins in his prime and, and came here. Um, I, I think that's something that people are fired up about because the Twins just don't do stuff like this. It usually requires a trade to get a guy like this to come in. And you're right. This is a team that, uh, look, first of all, pretty much all teams can afford the kind of contract that he wants. It just makes it more difficult with their circumstances. I mean, eating up 35 million, you know, the, the twins have generally run about $130 million in payroll the last couple of years. And that's basically a quarter of your payroll right there. And if he gets hurt, your season is kind of stunk. Um, but that said, you don't really want to commit to the tenure for that reason. You know, like the, the twins, signed Byron Buxton in December to an extension. And Byron Buxton has a history of injury issues. It's just been his his thing. He's only played in more than 120 games once since 2017. That was 2017. But he is a premium player when he's on the field. So how do you get around it? And the Twins found a really creative way with him, which was they pay him a base of $15 million after this year. Um, if he wins the MVP, he gets paid appropriately. It's sort of like the pre-arb pool that just got negotiated into the new CBA. If Byron Buxton shows up in the awards, he gets bonuses up to $10 million. So he can make $25 million. That's the way you, the Twins have to, been able to keep a star player around is with creative contracts. This one was really creative too. And it's great for Carlos Correa. If he has a fantastic year, he gets to re-enter as a free agent next year and get the $350 million he wants. Uh, it, it like it sets it up great for him. If he gets hurt, he can come back next year, still make $35 million, and he'll be 29 when he becomes a free agent. So it, it really is win-win in a bunch of ways. I, uh, I think that the Royals, the Tigers, the Guardians, and the, uh, the White Sox are definitely fearful of what you said about, uh, you know, the, the A's no longer have to face Carlos Correa. Now he gets to go to the AL Central. I'm sure those teams are not very happy about it. He does a lot for the Twins uh, with fans and with the lineup. Well, I, I thought the trade with the Yankees was so interesting. Kiner Falefa comes over, and then all of a sudden, our man J.D., you know how much we love Josh Donaldson, ends up going to New York. They take his money. Kiner Falefa goes with him. And here comes the Sanchino and Gio Urshela. What did you make of the deal, and how do you think the uh, Twins make out in this one? Well, at the time, it was definitely a let's see what else they have up their sleeve because, look, you gave up Josh Johnson, who was pretty much your best player for the, the bulk of last season. Um, and, and that one was a little bit of a head-scratcher at the time, especially because they gave up Mitch Garver in the uh, kiner Falefa trade, and, and it looked like they were going for another good defensive shortstop. Um, but now in with, with the complete picture there, I think it's great. You know, you the only way you're able to get Carlos Correa is by freeing up the 25 million that you had to basically pay Josh Donaldson each of these next two years. The twins were more than happy to give Donaldson the four and, and 92 million that they did going into 2020. But there also is the expectation that, Hey, this is his age 36 and 37 seasons. And we're really paying for those first two years just to get him in here and help us win. And those 36 and 37 seasons, they might be slowed. He might be hurt. 
They're, you know, they, they might be eating it there. And so to free themselves of those contracts in, in years that they expect this production to slow is, is definitely a win, given that they spent the money. They had to spend it. They were looking at Trevor's story all week leading up to Carlos Correa. Uh, it looked like Trevor's story was going to become a twin. I think they had about a, a four-year, $100 million-plus offer on the table. And then the Red Sox and Giants got involved, and it got to six years, and they weren't going to go six years for – for story, even though it only would have taken him to about age 35. They just, they, they liked him for the next four. And fortunately, Carlos Correa fell on their lap. And, and that was because the lockout, it's just Scott Boris made the point at the press conference. He picked up Carlos Correa as a client in January. Uh, Correa left his previous agent after lockout began. And Boris basically laid it out for him. Getting 10 years and $350 million right before the season in this little window is going to be impossible. Teams don't have the money. Um, so, so he took the deal with the Twins, and, and it really changes everything because, man, Gary Sanchez getting out of New York, that's a scary proposition. Gary Sanchez is said to be thrilled, and, and I haven't had a chance to talk to him. Uh, just been away from camp for the last couple of days, but everybody's talking about how happy he is. And we saw the kind of player he was in 16 and 17. And then you just, you know, you get the New York post headlines, you get the media breathing down your deck, your neck every day and fans. I mean, honestly, he's not a great catcher, but he is a very good hitter potentially. And, and even that went away the last couple of years, the twins hope to tap into that. And obviously Gio Urshela can hit a little, but he's a great glove too. And, so it really, when you add in Correa, it, it all makes a lot more sense, and I think it's a very good direction for the Twins to have gone. You know, one thing that a lot of people didn't think about with our ball club is, you know, a lot of success, three straight years in the postseason, even though we didn't make it last year, still 86 wins, so a really a good four-year run for the Oakland Athletics. But we were long in the tooth. You know, everybody always thinks about the A's are rebuilding. We were, like, technically the oldest team in baseball last year. If you looked at our average age of players for position players and pitchers, and if my memory is correct, I think the Twins last year, weren't weren't the Twins one of the oldest teams in baseball? Yeah, they absolutely. Nelson Cruz and, and Josh Donaldson uh, leading the way with uh, early bedtimes, basically. Uh, it was definitely an old lineup we had. Cruz at 40 in his age 41 season, Donaldson 35 going into opening day. Um, they've gotten younger. They still have a really good core that's that's starting to get into that middle age, um, whether it's Buxton and, you know, uh, Polanco, Kepler, Sano, all these guys are hitting that 27, 28 age. Um, it, it's a really good time for them still to peak and they frankly wanted all these other guys, the Urshelas and Sanchez and Correas, Sonny Gray, because they've all got playoff experience and playoff victories. And, and one thing that people always talk about here, it really doesn't matter what the Twins do in the regular season until they end the post-game, postseason losing streak. It's uh, 18 games. It's the longest postseason losing streak in North American major sports history. Um, it's ugly. It goes back you know, a long time. And I think fans want to see it end, uh, you know, even losing a series three, one, if they get that one, I think they think the curse is over, but uh, it's, it's the goal. And I think that the twins wanted Correa who's played in 79 postseason games, 20 world series games. 
to come in and show them how to get over the hump. They thought they had that with Nelson Cruz, and they thought that they had that with Josh Donaldson. Uh, Donaldson, his only chance to be in the playoffs with the Twins, he hurt his hamstring right before the 2020 playoffs, and Byron Buxton got a concussion, taking a fastball to the head like three days before the postseason. That team lost to the Astros real quick, and the Astros made that deep run uh, in 2020. And that's just how it's been for the Twins lately. And so this is basically built to get them to October and get rid of that streak. And I got to think that a lot of people like the acquisition of Sonny Gray, who found his groove with his old pitching coach back in Cincinnati. But he gets out of pitching in a bandbox, and now Sonny gets to pitch at Target Field, which is more pitcher-friendly. Tell me about the excitement for the former athletic. Yeah, there, there's a lot. There's no question. I Again, I think it would be even better if there was like a Frankie Montas pitching in front of him or, you know, Sean Manaya pitching right behind him somewhere in that rotation. Um, the Twins still need pitching, and, and Gray was a good start. They, they went into the offseason with three openings in the rotation. Uh, the, the two that were holdovers, Bailey Ober and Joe Ryan, uh, Joe Ryan, a Marin County guy, um, you know, young guys with a lot of potential, but also with 25 major league starts combined. So they went in knowing they had a lot of work to do. Sonny Gray came over in that flurry of trades they made. He was the middle trade on March 13th. I think he, uh, you know, it was the Donaldson trade that night, Gray during the day. And, and it really gave them a good veteran to put up, up in the front of the rotation. They really needed it. Um, and, and he is maybe a little behind right now. I, I think pitchers in general across baseball are a little behind. He threw three innings in a minor league game the other day. I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't see him stretch past four or five innings uh, until the, the end of the month, just because they're not going to rush these guys. They know what a quick ramp up can do to pitchers and nobody wants to hurt their pitchers. So I, I think Sonny Gray is coming along slowly, but obviously a, a key guy to add to the rotation. You know, if it was 2015 and they said, hey, Chris Archer just signed, you'd be like, wow, that's a kind of a big <laughs> deal. Uh, but the problem is it's 2021. I know they're not paying him much, but what what are the expectations there? I, I think it's really to get them through the first month. Honestly, they may be paying him $3.2 million to get through April because the Twins do like that they have a lot of young arms. They have Josh Winder who – was solidly in the mix and, and would be in the rotation if there's an injury or a delay for any of these guys. Uh, Josh Winder, a lot of good stuff, but also just inexperienced. They have, you know, three or four guys behind him, Jordan Balazovic. They have, um, you know, Matt Cantorino, a couple guys that they really like. All their guys were sort of hurt last year in the minor leagues. Simeon Woods Richardson, they're very high on him. He came over in the Jose Barrios trade, but, you know, he was having a good year, and then he decided to go to Team USA, and, and they didn't pitch him. You know, they, there was like a 40-day window where he was basically throwing out of the bullpen, and he got into one qualifying game for Team USA. Great experience for him, but also a development killer. Uh, stunted his growth a little bit because he, he wasn't used by Mike Sosha. So, you know, they, they have a lot of young guys who they need to just give a little room to breathe and get ready for the majors, and I think that that's – why Archer is here. He's throwing 60 pitches in his bullpen. He threw one today down in Florida. Um, he's, he's basically ready to go. And, and if there's anything more than April, they're, they're ecstatic. You know, I mean, we, we know his injury issues. He hasn't pitched. I think he's, he threw 23 starts in 2019. 
Uh, last year, it was just five starts, six games, and um, very savvy veteran, still has the two good pitches, and, and I think they think they can get four or five innings out of him, and if they can do that every turn through for a little while, that's, that's a great thing for them. Um, any, any help there is a bonus, but obviously he's had a couple of years of hiccups. All righty, 80 and a half, a win total for the Minnesota Twins. Are we going over or are we going under? What do you think this ball club's going to be? <laughs> uh, are Billy and Dave getting on the phone with Derek Falvey? That's the question. Um, if that happens, 80 over for sure. I, I do think the Twins will really try uh, and add more pitching, and, and they have the farm system to go out and get it. Uh, I, they have the drive to go get it. It's just when when that becomes available to them. If they have to wait till July, it'll make it a little trickier. I mean, we could see Carlos Correa traded at the deadline himself if things aren't working out. But, you know, last year they traded Jose Barrios. They traded Nelson Cruz. Um, they had the tough part of their schedule coming up, and they went 29 and 28 down the stretch because their offense is that good. Well, their offense is better this year, and their defense is better with Correa at shortstop and Byron Buxton healthy. It is going to be one of the better defenses in the league if Byron Buxton is on the field. I think 80 and over is uh, is pretty easy. Man, I tell people all the time, Target Field is all the all, – I mean – the Viking hey, Stadium, but yeah. Target Field is – I love, like, out in left field. We were there during college football season, and we're watching the game. But you look up, they had all the college football games on. It was like, but left field, yep. when you're up there, it feels like you're in a sports bar. It is. It, look, I, I, I'm very biased. I love Oracle Park growing up in the Bay Area. It's, it's one of my favorite places on earth. You know, Dodger Stadium, even though I hated that place growing up, it's a beautiful spot. You know, obviously Wrigley, Fenway, Safeco is great. Pittsburgh is great. Target Field's probably a top seven or eight ballpark in uh, in baseball. And and that's that's one of the reasons that I uh, really enjoy covering the Twins is that it's just a beautiful place to go to, and uh, especially during the summer. I mean, April. Let's let's not uh, let's not talk about April. Let's just skip to like May 10th every year weather-wise. Uh, but once the once the temperatures start warming up, it is a spectacular place to watch baseball. Where are you from originally? Rohnert Park, baby. Wow. How are you hanging in in these, these Minnesota winters? My cousin lives there, oh. and he'll tell me, it's like, oh, yeah, it's 13 below. Hey, I, what made it worse is I went to San Diego State and moved <laughs> directly from San Diego. So lay, layer up. <laughs> That's the good thing about clothes, you can put more on and, and stay warm that way. Yeah, I grew up right next to San Diego State. I grew up in San Diego. I can't imagine you going from San Diego to Minnesota. Uh, yeah, it was a it was it took a little while. The mental the mental challenge was pretty big, but I'm there now. Hey, well, great stuff, and let's have you on again soon. All right, guys. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. Thank you, Dan. Dan Hayes, who covers the Twins for the Athletic. Dallas Braden joins us. Dallas, when you hear a guy that's had a bad calf for years and is getting older says, in the offseason, I want to get more athletic, so I started playing a lot of basketball. How do you feel when you hear that? Well, I just hope that, uh, if we're talking about the Yankees, I hope that he and Aaron Boone, we're able to team up and at least get together and, and, and formulate a, a dynamic two-one-two. No, I mean, let's let's be honest. That's probably not exciting a lot of people 
that are in decision-making positions uh, because we all know that the contract comes with, you know, little clauses in it. And it tells you, hey, can you not do this? Can you not do that? You know, can you not ride a horse? Can you not ride a motorcycle? Can you not ride a snowboard? Can you not play in a hoop-it-up pickup basketball tournament? Those are just things that they're asking you not to do, to not jeopardize your playing time, not jeopardize the health, you know, for the company that's paying you probably a decent chunk of change to go out there and play baseball. So, look, I'll tell you straight up, I have always marveled at soccer players and NBA players just simply because of their cardio capacity, because it's just up and down, chase this ball up and down the court in the field all day. It doesn't stop. You know, sure, you're going to run offensive set or whatnot, but, but really it's just about being continuously mobile, moving. And so I get it, but for JD, ah, I, I feel like, you know, there, there's this thing County called the upper bike and it's just, it's two handles and you pedal it with your arms. Tremendous, tremendous cardio work out there. I would, I, would, I, I would slowly move away from keeping Josh Donaldson on his feet as, as much as possible. I mean, that's kind of like just giving the guy a pair of strength shoes. And to, you remember those things where you, just, yes. you walk and you jump on your cats like, hey, J.D., what do you live, five miles away from the ballpark? Why don't you just put these strength shoes on and run down here to the yard, and we'll see how the calf feels after that. Sound good? No, that doesn't sound good. That sounds terrible. Was there ever a time in your career someone invited you to do something and you said, yeah, can't do that against the contract. I'm going to have to pass. I used to love to snowboard. My buddies are huge into snowboarding, and that was something that I just never got to go do. I couldn't do it because for me, you know, we always joke about when you're a, when you're a low man on the totem pole or, or maybe you're, you're, you're not a high draft pick. You know, if, if you were to hurt a, a high draft pick, we always oh, like if I hit somebody in the face with a baseball, I'm getting released 10 minutes from now. Like I, I can't happen. So as a guy who was drafted in the 24th round, I could not show up to spring training or I couldn't report to our pitching coordinator and say, Hey, yeah, I haven't been able to touch a ball for a little while. I had this snowboarding accident. <laughs> That's why I could like, what? No, I would, I would have been released four minutes into that conversation. I mean, I basically had to pay to play baseball as it was. I was not trying to jeopardize any opportunity I might've had for myself. So that's, that's part of the, the give and take we talk about. You know, I'm actually having similar conversations right now with my oldest nephew uh, because, you know, baseball is a very real possibility for him beyond high school. And I have been explaining to him over the past two years, look, man, there's just things that are going to come up that socially you're going to want to be a part of, you're going to want to go and do, and you have to weigh the risk-reward, meaning – what you could do this weekend could very well put at risk the reward you're trying to earn for yourself, which is another day to play baseball and earn an education because you can play baseball. Those decisions are tough, but they have to be made now. If you want to be like your uncle, a washed up has been 38 year old dude who gets to play video games at 2 PM in the afternoon during the off season. Cause that's what I, that's, those are the decisions I tried to make. So it's, it's tough, but, 
but you, you have to understand what the, what the brass ring is, right? What, what you got your eye on the prize. So, I mean, look, and that's nothing that JD doesn't know. He's a super vet. He, he gets it. Um, but, but, you know, <laughs> there's things that are just done differently these days. And, and Hey, I'm just glad that I'm not the one writing the paycheck, watching him. He of a, a balky calf uh, playing pickup basketball. Yeah. When the conversation with the GM starts, I was in Tahoe. You know it's not going to end well. Uh, Dallas Braden is with us here on Hayes Cast Live. And, you know, we were talking about um, guys that walk a lot. Usually you can see that guys are bigger guys, home run hitters. Maybe pitchers don't want to deal with them. And that, you know, at times those guys can be tough to, to, to score. Like, they get on base, and that's great, but how do I score them? And I was thinking about you. I mean, really for the majority of your career, if you were walking somebody, it was intentional. Would you ever say, I'm not going to mess with this guy. I'm going to walk him, and I know it's going to be really hard for them to get him around to score. Right. I mean, there's guys that you have circled in that lineup, and, 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 and I'm not picking on the machine. At all. Albert Pujols, who I think we all are pretty excited about him making his way back to St. Louis. But for all intent and purposes, that's an individual that if he's standing on first base, like you're going to have to get four or five hits for him to come around and score, right? Like that's that's pretty much what it's going to take. I mean, it's either a homer or you're going to have to hit like three triples, and then maybe he'll be in <laughs> scoring position by that time. And for, for me, it was an opportunity where if you're, you know, if you've identified a spot in the lineup – a, a breathing hole of sorts. Think about being trapped under ice. You're looking for a hole to come up and catch your breath. Well, those clogs can represent that. And it's almost a double-edged sword that you're trying to sheath. Like, I don't want this guy hurting me power-wise. And I understand that I'm putting traffic on the base path, but I don't want it to be a one-run swing compliments of that big bopper there. What I can do, though, and what I have confidence in is making my pitch to the next guy. And I'm going to pick my poison here. And I know if I've got less than two outs with that guy, that big bopper standing there on first clogging the bases, like a bad bow. Like I, I'm, I'm okay with that because I'd like to think that I could get a, get a little rollover, a little four, six, three, six, four, three, whatever. And, and live to fight another day. So there is absolutely strategy involved when you're trying to weave your way in and out of a lineup that's got a lot of potency in it, you're looking for those guys that could A, hurt you, but B, really serve as sort of a, a slowing down, like a clog effect for you to try to get that ground ball and get you, get you and the boys out of that inning. You know, I've always said about our beloved Oakland Athletics is that it's the, the land of opportunity. And you've been through it in your career where you're a young guy and you're looking up and, you know, you pitch well you're going to have that opportunity at some point to get to the big leagues, to where some organizations, you're trapped. There's always somebody above you. You don't get that opportunity. What is it like to be in the minor leagues for the A's, knowing that you do what you need to do? There's a chance for you to get to the big leagues. Well, I, I can understand, you know, the, the, the idea of the, the A's and what the situation right now represents. I always try to send the message to guys in other organizations as well that each and every day you take the ball, whether it's an A ball or the big leagues, is always an audition for the 29 other teams out there because there's going to be movement whether you like it or not, whether you have a say in it or not. 
So all you can do is continue to represent and show what you are capable of doing. That being said, when you understand that the pathway is maybe a little wider and there's more of an opportunity based on what things look like ahead of you, well, that's where you have to go into assassin mode. You have to go into hunter mode. You need to become a great white. That way, the minute there's a drop of blood in the water, you know how to circle, you know how to strike, and you know how to clamp down and not let go of the opportunity that has arisen. And that's what the mindset needs to be like, whether you are in short season or you're in AAA and you're just a phone call away. The mentality should always be, I'm just a phone call away. I'm a big leaguer stuck in A ball. I'm a big leaguer stuck in double A. And when you have movement ahead of you, look, the writing's on the wall, right? We're not saying anything that isn't already readily apparent when you take a look at a roster. So if those opportunities are there, I don't understand how anybody could not want to be doing everything possible within their reach to put themselves in a better position than they were in yesterday. That has to be the mentality. You know, so much of professional sports is in between the ears. And we now talk so much about analytics, which are basically math equations, how we're judging these players with these numbers. And I'm reading this book about analytics, and it talks about how the W uh, for a starting pitcher is overrated and not a good way to judge a starting pitcher. And I say to myself, the mental side of a starting pitcher, that carrot that you throw out there for a starting pitcher, the achievement. And I think about a guy like yourself, Dallas, when you're out there and you're battling for that W and there's runners on, there's 30,000 people in the stands, there's just chaos. A pitcher's not up there thinking about his ex-fip. He's thinking about that W. He's thinking about that carrot. Talk about as a starting pitcher, you're going to have analytics and you're going to have numbers that tell you how good you really are, but what does the record mean to you as the human being, the starting pitcher? Well, it, it means a lot because you understand how hard it is. Once you get to the big leagues and, frankly, you know upper-level pro, pro ball, you understand how difficult it is to win a baseball game, period, full stop. Now think about being the starting pitcher who's responsible for giving his ball club the opportunity to win that game. You understand now, you know, these days, over the course of five, six innings, that's not necessarily enough work to be done. And I never believed it was when I was pitching. You know, I, I love the idea of a six-inning, three-run outing being quality, and, and I always say this, at the end of the year, if I give you 32 of those starts, just like that, my ERA is a 4.5 ERA. And if you just glance at that, you're not looking at me like a guy who's giving you a chance to win every day. You're looking at me like somebody who's probably putting pressure on the offense, putting pressure on the defense. So when you think about the way that the analytics have kind of, I don't want to say taken over, but the role that they have taken in assessing talent in assessing ball clubs it's it's now something where ironically we're watching the value of the starting pitcher the value of the guy who can go deep almost increase again because of the analytics because you're trying to identify these rare birds these unicorns 
that can give you that seven-inning body of work, two runs or less, so that the bullpen that you're going to be heavily reliant upon actually catches a breather here and there. Because over the course of a road, road, uh, of a road trip, 10 games or so, how often is that bullpen going to be asked to either clamp it down and stop the bleeding or to win the ball game for that team, rendering the starting pitcher basically a non-factor? Well, quite a few times. I'm going to guess probably four, at least half maybe, of those games in a road trip. You're going to be really relying upon those, those bullpen guys, and understandably so. But from a starting pitcher's perspective, when we were told, and it was kind of you know mathematically introduced, that the win doesn't mean much, a lot of that had to do with how bullpens were going to be deployed, how things were going to be used, how players were going to be used. So there's a point of pride that goes into it, and I totally understand it because you want to hang around long enough in the ballgame to really matter. And that's when we talk about guys who may or may not deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. And I'm, I'm not saying that he does not deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. I love the idea that a guy like Jack Morris is in the Hall of Fame. Why? Because when you listen to his teammates and you listen to the men that he competed against, understanding what he represented every fifth day for his team and essentially what the other team had to game plan for, that was a dude who was just not coming out of the ball game. It just wasn't going to happen. And he did that. I mean, we're talking about a 10 inning game seven. I mean, that's absolutely animalistic, but that's the mentality is I want to hang around long enough. So if this doesn't work out, put it on me, my fault. I'm the one who couldn't get it done. Or at the end of it all, Thank God I was able to give my offense just enough of a chance to put up one more run than them, and we're able to either hand the ball over to those absolutely devastating relievers, or if I'm fortunate enough, I get to finish what I started. So it's a huge point of pride from a starting pitcher's perspective, and I would really love to see starters' mentalities kind of get back to that because it does feel at times as though the crutch that has been presented in terms of bullpen usage is, is allowing guys to sort of cash out after six. And then you're just really excited if you get through six, you're really excited if you get through seven, which again, if you're following the way the game has been played recently, that's not a knock on the game. That's just the way the game has evolved. So I'm never one to cast stones at the way the game is played today, because I understand this game is ever evolving. But it's a fun little exercise to turn back and think about how many guys were pitching seven, eight innings when their team was down four runs or so, just because that's the way starters went, just because that's the way how they, that's the way they were deployed. So it's, it's definitely different these days, but in, in terms of valuing the win and valuing a guy that can get you through seven, maybe eight, maybe even finish it. I mean, those are rare breeds these days. You know, and I think bullpens year to year, you just have no idea. Like one year, you it's a strength. The next year, it's a major weakness. Why do you think they are so all over the board year to year? Because you're asking a multitude of guys. You're asking eight, nine guys to constantly be on it each and every day. I'm going to need you two to have your best days today. And then tomorrow it's going to be you two. I'm going to need to have your best days. 
And then maybe tomorrow it might be you three. And if we get lucky, maybe the day after that, I'm only going to need one or two of you again. Which ones? I don't know. Based on your performances those few days prior, it might not be you. And so when you think about asking that much out of that many guys day in, day out, things change. Guys are either trying to figure something out by way of a pitch or by way of feel. Maybe they've worked on something mechanically or they're going through something mechanically. And this just happens to be the year where it's not getting put together. This just happens to be the year where things are herky-jerky and I just can't quite figure it out. And if that happens, and that happens to maybe one or two guys down there in a bullpen, the entire complexion of that troop of arms down there has changed. Because now the guy you were relying upon on the plus side of things, when, when we're winning a ball game and this guy can give us maybe four or five outs, well, if he's, if he's stumbling right now, who do you go to? You're going to be asking someone very different than that fella to do his job. And that's not his job. His job is something else. But that now changes in the blink of an eye. So that's why I believe bullpen uh, performance can be hit or miss is because very rarely do you get the guys who are as, you know, who are as consistent as, as you'd like them to be for years at a time. It's, it's, it's tough to find, especially when you're talking about an entire group of guys. You'd love to have six out of the eight completely dialed in for a four or five year stretch. Well, what are the odds that those fellows are a part of your bullpen for that four or five year stretch, right? Guys pitch. Well, guys outperform their contracts. Guys get paid guys move on. Things change. So you're constantly asking a lot of a large group of people that is really very fluid. When you think about the way bullpens are used between the triple a level and the big league level. Man, I could cut to, I could talk to you all day, but I got to get the Dodgers A's. Oh, let's go. Let's go. We got baseball at nighttime in the desert county. I can almost smell opening day, my brother. Oh, it's the best. Be well. We'll talk soon. Sounds good, buddy. We'll see you. The great Dallas Braden right here on A's Cast Live. Do we have our man Eno? Eno, how are you? It's been a while. It has, and it hasn't been that pleasant of a while. <laughs> yeah, well, well, okay, what the heck do you do during a lockout? Oh, man. I, I stare at the wall, and I hope it ends. <laughs> I mean, you got no numbers to crunch. You've got no you've I got... did my best. I, 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 I crunched some numbers on the proposals. Whenever a proposal came through, I tried to kind of you know, point out what money was at stake and how what what the numbers were they were battling over. And one of the things that I pointed out that I, and think ended up being important in the end was that the the things that they were talking about uh, paid for themselves. Like the players were offering patches on uniforms and expanded playoffs, and that was worth about uh, you know two hundred million dollars to the to the owners. And so the players were then trying to take that two hundred million dollars give it to young players with the with the new minimum salary and with the bonus pool and stuff so it's basically a negotiation about this 200 million dollars of new money and the players wanted to use it in a way that might change the economics of baseball going forward uh you want my quick little theory even though i work for a baseball team so i have to tread tread lightly but this is this is this is this is purely as a 
this is I, I'm taking my baseball hat off and I'm putting my, mm-hmm. my, my business owner hat on. Yeah. Baseball owners went into this thing knowing they're going to have to give some money. So what they did was they held on to their core beliefs on how they want to run their business. They gave the players some money here, some money there. But in the end, they knew with all of these new deals coming down because their value is that Apple of a con- – Yes, Peacock. Yeah. The value of sports is, is outside of the NFL. If you look at baseball, NFL, NHL – their value now is becoming as a content provider that you can provide mm-hmm. content for people. And if I'm if I'm Apple and I'm going to charge a subscription, I need stuff for that subscription. And that's where baseball is starting to fit in. Like if I'm the owners, all right, we'll give them a little money here. We'll give them a little money there. That'll shut them up for five years. And in the meantime, <laughs> we're going to make a boatload of money. What do you think? Yes. Uh, the major thing was there was no real structural change. The biggest structural change was the creation of the new bonus pool. I think that is something kind of new uh, that will pay some young players that, that play exceptionally, but it only helps the kind of guys that will sign big deals later anyway. So they didn't really get structural change. I'll agree with you on that. And I do think, I do like think that maybe there was some goal of like maybe breaking the union or like, you know, really, you know, uh, trying to push them to the brink because there was some brinksmanship going on. We almost lost regular season games, you know? So there was some, like, we want to, like, we really want to make an impression on the union and put them in their place, blah, blah, blah. In the end, I think the union did well for changing the minimum salary. They did some good things that will make younger players get paid more, but the owners got no structural change. There are no big changes. I think you're right about that. All right, one thing that I absolutely love is Pitchcom. And I'm on their website right now. And for people to understand, Pitchcom basically is a little device that the catcher will have. He will press a button. It'll tell you the pitch and the location. And it will notify shortstop second base. It can happen in English. It can happen in Spanish. On their website, you know, I'm looking at it right now. It says, the ultimate covert communication system that's been used in low A, the Arizona Fall League. But So let's say catcher hits the one button. I don't know how to say slider outside in Spanish, but he hits the button, and the middle infielders are now going to know, okay, slider, low outside, everybody can – uh, understand and position themselves the right way. Corey Seager already likes it with the Rangers. What 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 do you think of Pitchcom? <laughs> I know that Max Scherzer uh, said very very succinctly, "I will not do that." No. <laughs> but, uh, so there's always whenever you have a new idea in baseball, there's always uh, some pushback. I like it, and I think it could do a lot to do undo some of the sign stealing stuff that we've had with the Astros and stuff like that. Um, also, I think it could improve the pace of play because one of the ways we've dealt with sign stealing is that the pitchers will have a card in their hat that they've got to check. Okay, what line are we on? And, oh, okay, we're doing the third set of signs. Okay, that's this. And then the catcher will give some signs, and then maybe the pitcher will forget and will have to look again, or the catcher has to look at his thing on his arm and be like, okay, third set of signs. So it's like, you know, that is actually minutes of our life that are going by. So uh, I like that part. The only thing that makes me a little bit worried is I worry that it'll turn into a new kind of arms race 
where someone's trying to block that signal or hack that signal. And all of a sudden we find out years from now, the Arizona Diamondbacks, and I'm not picking on them, I'm just saying like, oh my God, the Arizona Diamondbacks had some Bluetooth hacker on the field that was hacking the, the pitch con and was like giving all the signals. So like, I, you know, that's baseball, right? Like we'll come up with some solution and five years from now we find out someone's been hacking everybody's pitch con. So <laughs> that's the only thing I worry about. Well, now, when you say that, you, 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 you want to sound like you're not crazy, right? <laughs> but come on. No, no, no. Like, but I'm going I, I, no, to back you because let's go back to the late 80s where it's legendary that Bill Walsh and the 49ers at Candlestick Park, because Bill Walsh would script the first 20 plays that Bill Parcells, legendary coach of the Giants, said it always seemed to happen that at the very beginning of the game, everybody's headsets would go out, and when one mm-hmm. si- when one side's headset went out, the other side had to take theirs off, and they would cut them to communication, <laughs> and Bill Walsh exactly. wanted that because he had already scripted the first 20 plays. And there is a legend. Yeah. They have this on NFL Network and NFL Films where Bill Bill Parcells said he warned Bill Walsh before a game, don't do it, Bill, or I will expose you. So to think that – so when I'm saying you don't want to sound crazy, that stuff's happened in the NFL for years. Right, right. And then the first – the very first sign-stealing scandal in baseball, I think, was back in like the 30s or something, um, or maybe it was the 50s. Somebody uh, – somebody put a buzzer in the ground underneath the third base coach's box. And so there was actually something that would vibrate in the ground and tell the third base coach if fastball was coming. What? I kind of like it. (laughs) (laughs) Someone, when they caught them, they actually were like at the baseball game, like digging up and they would like found a device in the ground. (laughs) You're sitting around going, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know how that got there. They must've had that. So so like, if you're in Oakland, you could have said, they must've put that there for the monster trucks. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I think it's a, it's a good like short term solution. I wonder how strong it is in terms of hacking, like how, how, how sure they are that it can't be hacked. And um, apparently it says something out loud uh, so that, you know, you kind of have to be careful that it doesn't say it so loud that the guy on second can hear it or the batter, you know, <laughs> if it's like fastball, you're like, Oh, thanks. Fastball. Yeah. No, I, it's funny <laughs> how they say it. it's like slider low and outside. Yeah. Now you're going to have guys have gloves over their ears. So the runner can't hear it. That would be funny. Um, <laughs> So right right before our show, Ken Rosenthal posted the article about Mark McGuire. But you go down and something very, you know, because I'm so into the A's and into our own little world that, you know, I'll look at other, you know, I watch baseball, love baseball, look at other teams. But, you know, C.J. Nikowski and I from the Rangers and I had this conversation about we all know our teams better than we know, we know other teams. And in Rosenthal's article today, I don't did you get to see it, by the way? Not yet. Okay, so you go down a little bit, and one thing says potential problems for the Braves. And he talks about here, Freddie Freeman leaves, and you bring in an outside guy, our own Matt Olson, for eight years, $168 million. Then you got 
these guys that are just won a World Series for you, they're going to arbitration. Uh, they did not settle. They're now going to have arbitration cases that are going to go out through the year. Um, you got guys that were that were balling for you in the World Series, and you're haggling over $250,000 with them, but you just paid an outsider like Matt Olson that kind of money, and he's never done anything for you. I didn't think about that for the dynamic inside the A's clubhouse, but obviously players talk, players know about money, they know who's making what, and if you're a guy that just helped this team win a World Series and they're haggling me for 250 k and they just gave Matt Olson all that money, could there be a problem in that clubhouse? That's an interesting question. I think that, um, you know, the person who is paid, the position player who is paid the most is the natural leader in the clubhouse. That's something I've learned over the years of, you know, being in clubhouses. So I think he steps right in and is now the leader in the clubhouse of a clubhouse he's never been in before. <laughs> um, just knowing him, though, everyone loved him in here in Oakland, uh, the players. Uh, I never heard of any problems and he was friends with different parts of the clubhouse. Um, and he's also from Georgia. So, you know, I think he's got a lot of motivation himself to like, to make it work in his hometown. And I, I, I hear the idea, but I, I just think in practice, knowing Matt Olson, I don't, I don't actually think it'll be a problem. Yeah, I, I agree because he's such a good guy. But I do see where other guys could be like, wait a minute, I just pitched all these innings for you in the World Series and you're haggling me for pennies. I, I, I can just. I think that might be anger towards Anthopolis, you know? Like, yeah. that doesn't necessarily need to port over to anger towards Olsen, you know? Because, like, most players are like, hey, man, get yours. I want to get mine. I want you to get yours, you know? Um, I think that just might lead to some anger towards. Uh, Anthopolis, where maybe nobody signs. I mean, they have they have two of the most team friendly young player extensions in Ozzy Albies and Ronald Acuna. So, like, I doubt anybody else on that team is going to sign up for you know extension where they give up their their free agent years or whatever. You know, well, so I think that that might be what happens. You broke the news on, on Jed Lowry coming back to the A's, which was just it was so funny. It's like you know, it's like <laughs> Jed and the A's. It's just it's just such like the greatest fit ever. Uh, but when you look at the two pieces left, and Frankie Montas and Sean Manaya, Sean Manaya threw the ball real well last night against the Dodgers. How do you think these two play out with the A's and, and they're being moved on? Yeah, it's interesting because I've been saying that you know. Billy Bean doesn't usually do full teardowns where, you know, he usually tries. I remember there's been times where you think he's doing a teardown and then all of a sudden he signs Joanna Cespedes, right? And, uh, and says, no, no, we're buying and selling, you know? Um, and so I, I think he's usually, and, and when he trades for players, as you've seen with Kevin Smith, uh, Shea Langoliers, Christian Pache, the guys that came back in, uh, in the various trades they made, uh, he tries to get guys he can put right on the major league roster. I mean, I think Pache is going to be the center fielder, and I think uh, I think Kevin Smith is going to be the third baseman. So, um, you know, when I look at the fact that Manai and Montas haven't been moved yet, I wonder if it's like, hey, we're going to put a better squad out there than people think. And in, if things break right, then we're good. If things break wrong, then I can trade those guys for about the same value, at least when it comes to Manaya, I can trade him for about the same value at the trade deadline 
when I have more desperate people, you know, trying to, more desperate teams, knowing they're going to go to the postseason, wanting Mania, than right now where everyone's like, well, you know, I think we're okay. We don't have to pay that much. Um, so I think Mania will maybe likely make it to the trade deadline, and then and then we'll see how the A's are doing. You know. So it was, it's kind of funny. I, I was just back home in San Diego visiting my brother, and we were uh, at this golf course, and it was starting to rain, so everybody was inside. And on television on ESPN, they were doing season totals for baseball, and the A's came up at 69 and a half. And everybody looked over at me, and I said, you know, you got to realize about us is that we overachieve a lot. Like, whenever you think it's going to be so dire, like 2012, we thought was going to be such a horrible season. So it's like, it's tough to, it's always tough to look at the A's and say, wow, this team's going to be terrible. Because before you know it, a bunch of moves are made, and then the, then they're competitive. It's really, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's really hard to gauge how a season is going to go with the green and gold. It really is, and and it's just not really styled to do the the full tear down to the nuts and bolts and and lose 120 games. I mean, he just hasn't done that, you know. So I think that that sort of that that's what he, this looks like a pitching and defense squad to me, you know. I think he has changed it up a little bit where, you know, he's been he's had mashers, he's had bad defensive squads, you know, he's had different he's had different approaches. But this this one looks like, you know, Pache in center can really run it down. Kevin Smith was a shortstop like two years ago. So, like, I, I think this is going to be a really good defensive squad, and uh, maybe they just win a lot of one-run games. Well, your partner on The Athletic put out – Jim Bowden put out all the grades for the offseason. He gave the A's an offseason grade of A. Would you agree with that? I can see the perspective, which is given the mandate uh, to cut or given the mandate that, you know, given the idea that maybe this team wasn't going to, um, you know, compete as be- as built and they just trying to change it up. Um, I guess I like it. Um, I would rather the team had the resources to, you know, run an 80, you know, 90, 100 million, maybe $120 million payroll. And then they, then they could have kept their team from last year and added to it. Um, so, I mean, sometimes some part of that is frustrating. I know it's a larger story that has to do with, you know, the park and the ongoing battles and, you know, where the, where, what, where the team's future is and all that. But, you know, I, I hesitate to give them a full A. I do like some of the players they've gotten. Yes. I think, uh, Pache, you know, and, and Kevin Smith have such a high floor defensively that, they're going to be probably major league regulars, average players at worst. And if something clicks offensively, they can do a lot better. Um, so I, I do think that that's, I mean, that's think of like Marcus Simeon when he came over, right? Like Marcus Simeon. Oh, not really a shortstop. Some defensive questions about position. You know, how much is bad does he have? And, uh, and look at who Marcus Simeon is today. So I think they, they tried to get guys that were probably going to be average major leaguers and had a little upside beyond. And so for that part, I can give them some good grades, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the craziness of, you know, everything that we're going through right now is even even guys that you trade now may not be guys that will be here when a new ballpark opens up. I mean, yeah, none of this is on, like, a one-year timeline. <laughs> no. It's not like there's going to be a new ballpark next year, so. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a, it's kind of hard to to read the tea leaves, and I guess that's why there's not that much of an investment in payroll, and that's why we had those trades. And it's frustrating as a fan. I mean, I can feel it. Um, it's it's interesting to me as a national writer that's often in this clubhouse because, you know, I'll I'll, I'll get closer with players than you know in Oakland, and then I start seeing them in other teams. <laughs> I just visited Marcus Simeon in Texas camp. It was great to see him. <laughs> and then, then, then towards the end of their career, hey, Stephen votes back. These come guys, back. these guys always <laughs> come back. It's crazy. Jed Lowry, come on back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Simeon, I would bet you right now, Simeon wears an A's uniform again at some point. <laughs> like finishes the contract that he just signed. <laughs> I would bet that he, you know, he wants to be back home. He never wanted to leave. His wife wants to be here. I guarantee he comes back. <laughs> Speaking of the Coliseum, all 30 teams, this was a big deal with the Rockies, like a humidor, like we put our cigars in humidors. I mean, do I need, right. to, do I need to track down Dave Renetti and find out where this humidor is to keep my cigars for after games? So every team now is going to have a humidor? That's right. And uh, Oakland might be one of the more affected stadiums. It's, it's tough because people think of humidity in terms of just how wet the air is, like mugginess, right? Yeah. And the hotter the, hotter the temperature gets, uh, the more water you can fit in the air. So, yes, when you're in Atlanta, when you're in Baltimore in the summer uh, and it's 90 degrees out, that there's more water there in the air than in Oakland. However, if you normalize for temperature – there's more water in Oakland. Like it is actually humid in Oakland. I think people that live around here kind of, kind of feel that, you know, they know their towels don't dry that easily. You know, they know, they know when they go to the desert, they're like, wow, this is super dry. So, um, you know, these parks here, given the certain, the temperature that we're all at, and that's why I'm trying to find out how balls were stored across the league because balls were supposed to be all stored at 70 degrees, which means the same temperature everywhere which means then relative humidity matters, which means Oakland will be affected more than most parks. Um, and we're talking about adding about 7% homers. So I'm really interested to see how the season plays out in Oakland. It may be one of the most offensive-friendly uh, seasons ever uh, for the stadium. See, like, 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 like San Francisco, for example, like whether it's Candlestick Park or now Oracle, people are freezing in the summertime – Going to the games, you watch a Giants game. I'll stay away from the A's. You're watching a Giants game. People got beanie caps on, scarves, uh-huh. multiple jackets. I would say, but it is wet. I yeah, it it's wet. it's wet, but it's wet from the 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 atmosphere coming off the Pacific Ocean. I wouldn't say that's humidity, but I'm not a meteorologist. I mean the the real the real the real thing that matters is how much water is in the air. That's what we're talking about. How yeah. much water is in okay. The air. Um, and so it is, it can be a little bit less water in the air, you know, when it's not as cold, when it's, it can be less water when it's, when it's not as hot, but it's still water in the air and it all matters where the ball is stored and how much water can get into the ball while it's being stored because it sits there for hours. And, you know, in Arizona and Denver, it used to get really dry and super bouncy and the ball would go even further. So now we put a humidor there and it puts water into the air around the ball and so the ball is not as dry now in the in the wetter places it'll take water out of the balls and make them more bouncy 
So uh, there is some guesswork here. I'm trying to write about it right now, trying to figure out where. But the, the list by relative humidity says San Diego is the most humid park in baseball. Uh, and uh, second and third are Oakland and San Francisco. So it's going to take the humidors will do an opposite effect. What happens in Arizona and Colorado? Yeah, it will. Oh, okay. So, so in Oakland, San Diego and San Francisco, it will take the moisture out of the ball and taking the moisture out will make it more like a golf ball and it will just fly. Right. So we're talking about adding maybe eight to feet, uh, eight to 10 feet of distance uh, on long fly balls. So, you know, kind of uh, wall scrapers, uh, you know, outs, like even some outs at the warning track, some of those will be homers. Should I like it or not like it? I kind of, I mean, I'll read your article. I read all your articles. I just, should, should well, I be, should I, should I be pumped for it or should I be worried? It's, it's tough because like for every extra homer your, your offense hits, uh, you know, your, your pitching gives up one too, right? So it's not like it's super easy to figure out. Um, I would say that given the way that they just lost Matt Chapman and Matt Olson, I would say it might not be great news for the A. All right, so you, you you look at a lot of different things, and that's one of the reasons why we love having you on the program, one of the reasons why I think everybody should subscribe to The Athletic. You know, The Athletic to me is kind of like what we do here on A's Cast and A's Cast Live. It's like it's not traditional, but it's better than what the traditional offers. And I know people are like, but do I have to pay for The Athletic? Yes, but you're paying for quality. The Athletic covers sports better than anybody. What you guys do, I, I, I tell everyone they should subscribe to it no question and you know what's what's one thing that going into this season that you've got you know you got your radar on that you go you know what I'm going to follow this throughout the season because I I don't know where it's going to go but it's going to be fascinating I think this humidity thing is really interesting to me because we've seen it happen in two parks uh, Denver and Colorado where it was a massive difference and now uh, we're going from 10 humidors in baseball to 30. So that's a pretty big difference. 20 new ballparks are going to be different next year. It's just a question of how different. And then uh, the other thing is the sticky stuff enforcement and the and ball gate and the whole, you know, that thing is just is continuing where baseball has kind of announced that they're going to do more stringent uh, sticky stuff checks where they're going to, you know, check the hand top and bottom and like, look a little closer at pitchers because there was some evidence that some of the spin came back late last season after there was a sticky stuff enforcement. So, uh, you know, and they have not developed a new pre-tacked ball or there was rumors of like a new uh, stickier rosin and they have not developed those in time for the season. Uh, so they're, they're not really giving players pitchers any options to do different and yet they're going to enforce it harder. So, I'm wondering if uh, we may have a fairly like high offense year between the humidors uh, and the sticky stuff enforcement. Well, I just say this as an ex former bad pitcher myself. Let's just say this. <laughs> let's just say this. Let's just call it fair. Nobody gets anything. 
Pitchers don't get anything. Hitters don't get anything. Put your batting gloves away. Put your pine tar away and all the other crazy stuff you put on your bats. No shaving the bats. Let's just have everything be standard. Nobody gets anything extra, and let's just play. How about that? Oh, but all the, the cottage industry around baseball of all the people that are they've got some new innovations, some new nope. bat techniques, some new Nope. <laughs> Everybody is everybody's <laughs> playing the same. Hey, it's like in the NBA, they all play with just the same ball. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some shoe technology maybe, but you're right. <laughs> now, yeah, I don't I mean Steph Curry doesn't have anything different on his hand than anybody else has. Yeah, it is It is a little bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. It's like, okay, if we want to take everything away from pitchers, let's take everything away from everybody and just play straight up. Yeah. I. This is like the the, 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 the – it's just like the conversation we started with, you know, because you've got this, like, machine that's going to help us, like, communicate from the pitcher to the catcher, right? And what happens if they hack the machine? <laughs> so yeah. The same thing with, like – well, we gave them – well, their hands weren't – you know, they couldn't grip the ball, so we gave them rosin. Well, then they figured out that, you know, rosin helps them spin the ball, and what if they put this other stuff on it? And then all of a sudden, they were using stuff that people were using in weightlifting competitions on their hands and, like, getting blisters because the ball was ripping skin off their fingers. <laughs> you know, like, that's what baseball is like. We, we give an inch and everybody takes a mile. Can, can, can we hack into people's – uh, uh, Hawkeye or Rap Soto or can we hack into any of that stuff? Oh, I've I've actually heard some stuff about certain teams like having bad uh, Hawkeye or TrackMan setups um, and knowing themselves what the adjustments are, like that they can do mathematically. Be like it's like the same as being like, oh, the radar gun here is always off like two miles an hour, but everybody who comes to town is like, why is everybody like throwing? badly and they'd have to figure it out over time whereas the home team is like yeah yeah we know it's off two miles an hour everything's fine so <laughs> I've, I've heard that they do the similar thing with TrackMan. uh sometimes in the minor leagues where they have the settings all wrong and every other team has to figure it out <laughs> <laughs> oh is, are they doing that on purpose yes that's what i've heard <laughs> <laughs> no your guy's not throwing 99 he's throwing 84 i have no idea why today <laughs> i don't know what's going on <laughs> all right let's end on this it's springtime things are changing flowers are blooming you know we're getting ready for summer what is the beer of choice for our expert in the spring hmm I have really, you know, I heard something something really interesting. Santé Darius makes these uh, really great IPAs that I like. And I heard that they do not, it's called rustic ales for a reason, they do not actually filter their water. And Santa Cruz has what most people think of as bad water quality. And so uh, there's a sort of mineral uh, sense to their IPAs that I really enjoy that is there because it's the Santa Cruz water. So I just think that's a fun story. It has a little bit to do with kind of wells and water and spring. So uh, Santé Darius IPAs, if you can get your hands on one of those. Yeah, because your palate definitely changes, whether we're talking beer, talking food, everything starts to change as you get out of winter. Yeah, I don't want. I don't want to. I have a stout sitting in my fridge that I'm just staring at, and I'm like, I don't really want that right now. 
Well, yeah, but but the thing is, you got to drink them or you got to throw it out, right? Well, at least the stouts might last till next winter. <laughs> do 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 we still have the beer fridge in the garage? We do, we do. My wife keeps trying to put other stuff in it. She's she's big in in flowers, and so I find buds in there, and you know, I've I've got to push them to the side. You know, that's my beer fridge. Yeah. This is this is Eno's beer. I mean, for God's sakes, you have a beer named after you. You're kind of a big deal. <laughs> I need more space for beers with my face on it, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you are the best, my friend. Once again, the athletic, what you guys do, and really, you know, I don't know how much you talk to the guys in the NFL or, but I mean, everything on the athletic, whether it's college football, football, NBA, uh, college basketball, obviously, what's going on now, you guys are second to none. It's the best sports journalism going. So I will always promote, my friend. You be well, and I can't wait to see you. All right. Thanks a lot. Eno Saris of The Athletic. Fipster, how we doing today? <laughs> hey, man, I need you to. The day that I leave this earth, I want you to say my eulogy. Okay, I didn't because, even get uh, into your. I didn't even get into your coaching <laughs> career. People don't realize you've you've done it all. Yeah, 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 Tommy. I, I've been blessed, man. I've been able to go back to my alma mater high school, Skyline High in Oakland, and coach, and then coach a Division II, the Academy of Arts in San Francisco. And then just around town, I have so many kids that I work out today at 430. I'll have six kids in the cage, and we'll be doing some hitting lessons. So, you know, baseball is just a part of my blood. I love giving back to the kids. And I think the biggest thing that I really appreciate is when I see them grow as players and become players and, and now can talk to me on the same level as a, a normal hitter. And I just, I just love that. So I'm in the community. I'm still just coaching off the, off the field, but just doing it in a different way where I can really help my community. I, I want I want to take you back to some of your early spring trainings where you're showing up to spring training. To, you were in Yuma in the beginning, right? Right, right. Right, so you're showing up to Yuma. I mean, you're dealing with future Hall of Famers and guys like Roberto Alomar and Tony Gwynn. you got a big-time uh, run producer, Joe Carter. I think you, these players – I mean, you go to an A spring training right now as a player, Bip, and you don't have any established, like le- – legit big league talent around you. What do you what do you think that's like to go into a spring training and have a shortened spring training with a bunch of unknowns? Well, you know, my first spring training, I was a rule five from Pittsburgh over to San Diego. And first base was Steve Garvey. <laughs> Shortstop was Gary Templeton. Third base was Greg Nettles. Right field was Tony Gwynn. And I mean, you just had a team that in 84 had went to the World Series and I was supposed to become a part of that. So when you're young, like I was, I was, a, I was really nervous because I had seen these guys on TV and, and every guy was like a, a rock star to me. So when I saw them, I was really nervous. As I got older and I was around guys like Joe Carter and Roberto Alomar, I had already established myself. So I went to camp knowing that I was a part of the team. Then when you get to a team, let's say the A's right now, you're not nervous because everybody is just like you. They're trying to find their way. The only part, only time you may get nervous is before a game because you want to do well. And I think that's just normal. Everybody gets butterflies. But I don't think that that pressure that I felt as a Rule 5 walking into camp, believing that I was supposed to 
take the spot of Alan Wiggins, who was a great player, dynamic player, and fill his shoes. That was difficult. But I just think the A's right now, these young guys, they don't have anything to lose. They play well. They're on the map now. And the A's now believe that, hey, there's a guy that can play in the big league. So if I'm young and I'm in Oakland A's camp right now, I just do my best. I just try to be who I am and play the way that I'm capable of and just try to open some eyes right now. Yeah, I got to think, and the best advice that I would give is, don't listen to a bunch of old, washed-up guys like myself. Uh, <laughs> right now, you've got opportunity. The The Oakland A's for a young player or even an older player still trying to hang on, right now I, w- I would view it I would view it as the land of opportunity. Like, there's 29 other teams. I may not get this type of opportunity, but with the A's, if I'm a young, especially a young player, hell, I got a chance to be in a big league roster. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Everyone right now is playing on the even playing level field. And it's now a matter of who can get the job done. Who can you convince these coaches that you are the guy that should be on the 28-man roster right now? And as they, they shorten it to the 25-man roster, it is a great opportunity. I, I don't know many names out there right now or who is capable of, but these, these coaches have been around these kids for a couple of weeks now, and they know based on what they've seen out of them in the minor leagues, who can probably come up and play on this level. The big leagues is tough. You know, it, it, it's AAA and then the big leagues, but the big leagues is five or six steps above AAA because you're going to continue to play against the best of the best now, that 1%, the guys who used to get you out or the guys who would get hits off of you, even though you were a prospect. So it's a matter of who has the... I guess the, the, the know-it-all to make changes in their game according to where they are. And I think that's the biggest transition a player from the minor leagues has to make because remember now, these guys are going to be throwing 95-plus with good sliders, good change-ups, good curveballs, and excellent control. And if you're a hitter, they will take advantage of that. And so you as a hitter now, you have to become more of a student as to how you, how you get your game better on the level of what a major league hitter should be. So now it's just a matter of can you refine your tools to be consistent on that level? And those guys who do, those are guys who will remain on that 25-man roster. You know, I think back in the day, if you were somebody who played multiple positions, you were valuable, but you were kind of looked at like, well, he doesn't have, he doesn't have an everyday position. Even though we find him valuable, we kind of look down on him to where – I got to think that's completely changed in our game, that flexibility is almost the number one thing, and you're even more valuable if you can play quality defense all around the diamond, if you can play infield and outfield and bring it to and bring it to me at the plate. Man, Bip, that kind of guy is so valuable for you. I want a guy who shows up every day with four different gloves and I can put him anywhere in the lineup. Hey, absolutely. Uh, Tony Phillips is the name that comes to mind. Jose Okendo and then myself. We did that back in the day and were able to make all-star teams based on that versatility. Um, I think now it is pretty much a a requisite for players to now be able to play more than one position. Yeah, you're right. We were a jack of all trades, but a master of none. But we allowed the manager to sleep well at night because he knew that if a guy was struggling, that we could fill that position for that day or whatever days it would take to get that other guy out of his slump or, or maybe he just wasn't playing well. We were like the insurance policy for each manager. 
And so I think now, as we watch what the A's and, and how Bob Melvin used to run the team, he had a bunch of guys who could play different positions. And I think that allowed him to sleep well at night, knowing that if somebody struggled, he has other guys who can play that position. And he doesn't have to call up anybody to come up and play that position. He already has those type of guys on the field. We call those an arm, a Swiss Army knife because it has all the different tools within itself to get the job done. And so I, I just think you're more valuable now when you can play more than one position because we're all baseball players. I once heard Marquise Grissom say, it doesn't matter where I play, I'm a baseball player. And I think that's true now in the definition of the type of player you want on your team. If you could give Mark Kotze any advice, first-year manager, and maybe it could be something that was said by any of the managers you had, what, what advice would you give him? Well, I would say first, just make sure you have a solid foundation as to what you want to teach from, what it is you want from your players. Um, don't have too many rules. Show up on time and play hard. And then just be there for your guys. The managers that I really loved to play for were guys who kind of stayed on me, but they were loyal to me. Uh, you would never hear them say anything negative about me in the papers. And because of that, I would run through a wall for those guys. And so I just think you keep it simple. You don't ask too much. But like I said, to show up on time, play hard, and while you're here, be a part of the team. And from there on, then you'll see the love that he has for these guys and, and, and reciprocal. They'll give him the same type of love back. And I think when you have that loyalty from your players, then I think that's when the guys kind of galvanize together and you become a great team or a great organization or just to have the foundation to find uh, the growth that you need to become a winner. And that's what they need right now. They need a foundation where they can grow from to become a winner because no one is really expecting much out of them, but they're big leaguers. So they're going to be on the big league field on the big league level and they're going to expect results from themselves. So, if you have those coaches behind you that's constantly teaching you the Oakland A's way, and this is how we're going to get it done. First, we're going to learn how to compete. Then we're going to learn how to play hard for nine innings. And then we're going to learn how to win. And if you just take it step by step and progress together, you'll get to that point where when you bring up guys, they know exactly what they're asked of and they can fit right in. And because Kate has been a leader, he knows by being a player, being a coach, he could say the right thing to a player at the right time on that bench and keep them motivated and trying to get better each and every at bat. So I just think he just has to really just be himself. He's always been that kind of guy who's been a leader. He's been a great teacher, but he's also been that, that calming ear. And then he knows how to exactly say what needs to be said at that time. So I just want him to be himself. We're going to root for him and hopefully he can have a successful season. You think about Stephen Vogt just having won a World Series with the Braves. You think about Jed Lowry coming back. I mean, Jed in April is going to turn 38 years old. Well, it's April 1st today, so this month he's going to turn 38 years old. Just talk to us about what it's like for these two guys. They've made all the money that they need, uh, so they're not here for the money. These guys, this is the end for them but they're in a place that they love, a fan base that loves them, a place that's just a really good fit for them and their families. Take us through what this year you think will be like for Jed Lowry and Stephen Vogt. You know, I think that these guys are quality veteran guys who really understand. Having talked to Jed Lowry before and a couple of times, he really understands his role and who he is in a major league uniform. 
And he really allows the young players to be young players and to allow them to play. He doesn't try to overshadow them with what his thoughts may be, but he listens to what they're saying, and then he has the answers to what they're saying as it, as it attains to what they're looking for. And I, I just believe he's going to be great in the clubhouse. Stephen Vogt, Stephen Vogt is on a level where someday he just may be a manager because he watches the game totally different. And then he understands the mentality of a young player and what he's going through and, and how he can help him through a lot of the twists and turns of a major league season. These guys have been in the big leagues a lot of years. And so they understand from 1 to 162. They understand exactly the pace you have to have. They, exact, they understand exactly the, the, the work ethic you have to have when it comes to getting your workouts during the season so that you stay strong and you don't get hurt. So these guys are there because of the leadership they will show in the clubhouse. That's the one thing about the A's that's always been strong is the clubhouse. I mean, when I came over in 98, the first thing I noticed was how chilled and how laid back and cool the clubhouse was and how each other, each player pulled for the other player. And I think that's a strength that Lowry and, and, and Steven bring to this team. They know what it's like to be an Oakland A in the clubhouse and what is asked of you. And so when the times are where they should win and someone needs to speak up, they will speak up and they will speak in the right manner to where it's not demeaning to anyone, but it's always encouraging. So I, I just believe it goes way back to the, the swing and A's back in the day when the, that clubhouse was strong. And it was strong because they used to throw blows. <laughs> they didn't take no mess <laughs> on each other. And they didn't take no mess on the field. But now it's a different time where the players need to be more encouraged, more so than, you know, really coming down hard on them. Yeah, you know, sometimes people say, well, that's just, you know, you got to come down hard on people. But not every player needs that. A lot of players, you know, there's three types of players. One that you can really ride hard one that you don't have to ride hard, and then there's that one that you need that needs encouragement. So I think Stephen Vogt and, and Jed Lowry will bring that to the clubhouse and understand each player. You know, you watch Chapman traded, Olsen traded, yeah. Bassett traded, and then now if you're Sean Mania or you're Frankie Montas – I, I doubt they're looking at all the stuff. I doubt they're going to The Athletic or ESPN.com or CBSSportsLine.com or Trade Rumors, MLB Trade Rumors. I mean, all the places where all the noise is happening. I doubt they're going there, but obviously sure. their friends and family are and people are saying things to them. What do you think it's like for these guys? They've watched their teammates get traded. They know all these teams are interested in them. I mean, you're wearing an A's uniform, but you don't know at what point you're going to get that call that you've been traded to somewhere else. What do you think that's like for Sean and Frankie right now? Well, I, all I can do is look back on how it was when I was a uh, San Diego Padre, and one day I wake up and in the paper it says that I'm going to be traded. And that's coming off the winter where Roberto Alomar and Joe Carter was traded, Jack Clark was let go, Mike Pagliarulo was gone, Tempe was now on his last leg there. Benito was about out of there. Um, so many guys were out of there. Just the whole team basically was gone, except for myself and Andy Dennis, along with Tony Gwynn. And I remember that one day I woke up that season and it says Roberts will be traded probably to the Reds. And so we had a team function at one of the owner's homes. And, and I remember uh, Tom Werner came to me, who was the owner at that time, and says, hey, we're not going to trade you. We're not going to trade you. 
and I just looked at somebody on my teammates. I said, that's a kiss of death right there. And that winter I was traded to the Reds. But I just think that what happens is you have to be ready for anything in this game. You're here today, you're gone tomorrow. If another team wants you, that's a good thing. That means that you played well enough to open some eyes of another organization and they're willing to trade some good players to bring you over because they believe you can help that team win. So you just have to overlook things, play your game, forget about what's happening on the outside and concentrate what's happening on what's happening inside the line because that's where you're going to have your, your solace, where you have that, that comfort zone, where you just feel like this is where I belong. And outside of it, you just have to stay away from anything that could take your mind away from the job that you're trying to do. So you can't be watching the ESPNs. You can't be listening to what people are saying on the radio. And you can't be reading the newspaper. You have to block all that stuff out. You know, we did the A's preview show the other day, and Brody and I, and we were doing a segment on the players here and the players gone. There was 11 players gone, 12 plus Bob, Bob Melvin. And then we were talking about what pitchers did you think could be influential in this year? And I remember saying, well, I think Sean Manaya is going to be that guy. And then after we got through with that segment, they said, hey, cut, we got to do that over. I said, what? He said, well, you know, Sean Manaya may not be here. So we got to say somebody who's going to be here. And I was just like, oh, my God. You know, I got, we can't even mention guys that we believe are going to be, you know, having good years this year. So it's just we don't know. It, it's a question mark. But the one thing Sean Manaya or Frankie Montas can't do is let that question mark get into their heads where they're looking over their shoulder instead of looking forward as to what they have to do on the field. Yeah, it's got to be tough. I mean, we it's a line of work that you, you get paid handsomely, but it is uh, to think that, well, you work and live here. Oh, by the way, you've been traded. You're now going to go work and play somewhere else. But, you know, that's the life of big league baseball. Yeah. One guy before you get out of here, Robert Poisson, Signed for at, what, 16 years old. Signed for $5.1 million. And, you know, there's something about being drafted versus being an international signing. Because if you're like a number one draft pick, Bip, that stays with you for your entire career. Like, people give you extra shots, right? Because they go, hey, he was the number one pick. But when you're an international guy and you sign at such a young age, I mean – Poisson now is 19. He's about to be 20. He signed for a lot of money, but since he doesn't have that, he was drafted in the first round. I mean, he's going to Stockton at 19, going to be 20. There's something about these international guys. Like if they, you know, they give you the pass when you're 16, 17, but once you start hitting 19, 20, if you're not progressing, like, you know, you kind of get lost in the shuffle. How much do you think that this is a big year for Robert Poisson, who was once considered a top prospect? Yeah, you know, Tony, every year is a big year because you have to remember that once your season starts, that the, the amateur draft is coming soon, and they're going to start drafting guys again. And now you're going to have guys who come into the organization, and their ultimate goal is to take your job. Your job is to play well to make sure that you put the numbers up. So now when they start to have you in a, your name in a conversation, they're saying how well you did. And that's on any and every level for any and every player that puts on a professional uniform. You can never take it for granted that a bad year will get you another year because a bad year will have your, your bags packed while you're on the field. And when you come in, you're on your way home. So 
even though he's maybe not where he should be right now, he's still young. I think that's the thing about it. He's still very young. 19, you know, a lot of guys don't get to the big leagues until they're 25. And you need the professional at bats approximately 1,500 so that then they will understand what type of player you can be. Because I believe that most of us who came through the minor leagues, we had at least 15, almost 2,000 at bats in the minor leagues so that they can get a good reading on what type of player we could be, whether it be a player who can make it or a player that's probably going to just be replaced by someone who's coming through the draft. So every year is a big year for him right now, even though, yeah, maybe he's, he has not lived up to the expectations of what a young player could be. But when you're only 16 and 17, you're not even a grown man yet, and you're playing in, in a grown man sport because most of the guys that you're playing against are probably 20, 21, 22 years old. So he hasn't even grown into his man strength yet. And I think that the level of growth is still there. I really, at my age, I think 19, I had some good years. But until I was 25, I didn't really know how to hit. I could hit a fastball. I could hit 320 in the minors. I could steal 50 bases. I could score you 100. But I still didn't know how to use the entire skill. So there was still a lot of growth there. And in my first year in the big leagues, I got exploited. I had 252. But because of guys like Gary Templeton and Tony Gwynn, I learned how to hit. And then I became, you know, close to a 300 hitter the rest of my career. But you need that, that growth spurt where you start to really understand what type of player you are. And, and hopefully he'll have that type of year this year where he knows who he is. He's a little older now. But hopefully he'll know who he is and what he's capable of doing and then get more consistent at it. Yeah, that, 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 that is the tough dance of getting signed at 16 years old. You, you, your, yeah. your clock gets sped up faster than a kid that's drafted out of high school at 18. Would you agree? I would agree because when you're 16, you're believing that you're going to be there by the time you're 20, 2021, 20, yeah. which is still very young. But you have to realize that the expectations shouldn't be that high. And I, I think when a player starts to understand that at 16, he's still not – I mean, professional guys have knocked the bat out of his head. He still doesn't understand what a good slider is. He still doesn't understand what a, a fastball with good velocity is. He doesn't understand how to play under lights that instead of a being bright white or bright yellow, and it's like dark out there, you can't see the spin on the ball. So, And these guys that you're playing against have come out of college. Some of them have come out of high school, but the majority, they're fill-ins on a, on a 40-man roster or a 25-man roster, and they're older. You just happen to be the young kid, but you have to perform. When you're the young kid on the team, you have to perform. I was always the youngest guy on my team, but I always perform. And so because of that, you grow. You start to grow. And the sooner he can grow, the better. Nowadays, they don't have like, okay, Tony, we're going to sign you. We're going to put you in rookie ball for three years until we know you develop. That's what would happen normally for a 16-year-old. You'd be there for three years until you develop. Now it's like, well, after that second year, we don't know. And then pretty soon you become uh, not a prospect, but suspect. And now in the eyes of the organization, if you don't produce that following season, you could be gone. So it is a dance. It's a dance between doing well and getting results, not doing well. And now the other side of results is you may get canceled. So he's got he's to pick it up. And I know he does. Hopefully the pressure doesn't get to him. But hopefully he has a good year. And if he does, then that turns around the the vision of what people have for you. The attitude is now different, and now they probably see you in a different light. So let's just hope that that happens. You're the best, Bibster. We'll see you at the first homestand. All right, brother. Good talking to you, man. Love you.
The great Bip Roberts. Love him too, man. That was my guy growing up. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.